Good evening, everyone. Um, it is now 5.30, and we will call this portion of the Shawnee Mission School District Board of Education um, regular meeting to order. Our first item on our agenda is the Pledge of Allegiance. If you would please rise. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Next, we need to adopt our agenda. I'll seek a motion to adopt the agenda. So moved, Goodburn. Thank you, Ms. Goodburn. Is there a second? Second, Hembry. Thank you, Ms. Hembry. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Our next item is the approval of the minutes from our regular meeting on October 26, 2020. Seek a motion. I move approval. Thank you, Dr. Sinclair. Is there a second? Second. Thank you, Mr. Stratton. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 And then finally, we have the approval of our minutes from the special meeting on November 10th, 2020. Is there a motion? Move approval, Goodburn. Thank you, Ms. Goodburn. Second, Guy. Thank you, Reverend Guy. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Thank you. All right, the next item on our agenda is public comment. Um, as you know, if you would like to speak uh, with public comment, please contact our board clerk, Terry Wintering. Um, for this evening's meeting, we had several people sign up to speak, and we were only able to have 50. 13 people speak, and we're shortening the time allotted to two minutes instead of three minutes, so all of those folks can speak. The other folks who signed up, there was five of them, um, wanted to speak on issues ranging from COVID to mascots, and so they have submitted their comments to us in writing, and I offered to them to be the first folks to speak at the December meeting since we couldn't get them in today. In the interest of time, I'm just going to jump right in. Our first scheduled speaker was Ms. Lisa Patterson-Kinsey. She signed up last week to speak this evening. It is my understanding she is not able to be here because she is ill, but has sent someone to speak in her stead. So if I don't know the name for who that is, I just understand that someone is speaking on her behalf. So when you approach the podium, if you could please introduce yourself and the school that you're affiliated with, that would be very much appreciated. And then Terry's got a clock that will do two minutes. And so that'll be when your time's up. Thank okay. you. Is it, can you hear me with my mask on or? No, you can leave your mask on, please. Okay, thank perfect. you. Um, my name is Karina White. I'm speaking tonight for Lisa Patterson Kinsey. Um, and I'll introduce myself if it's okay when I talk about my piece. But um, Lisa Patterson Kinsey, she's a parent of two North grads. She says, I appreciate the opportunity to speak on the subject of school mascots today. Thank you to the board for passing the updated non-discrimination policy in August. It was the first step in this process. It is way past time to end using it using the imagery of native people as mascots. I realize that changing the mascot at North will cost money. I also realize that the district budget has its limits, especially during this time of increased costs and possible de decreased state revenue due to the impact of COVID-19. However, I do not want cost to be the excuse for this change not to occur. The mascot at North needs to be retired now and a new one presented in the upcoming school year. I know that replacing items such as signage and uniforms will cost money. I would like to offer to lead fundraising efforts to offset that cost. For the past 20 years, I have been fundraising both for my son's schools and professionally for nonprofits. Additionally, there are grants we can apply for. There are many people inside and outside our community that support this change and would be willing to assist to make it happen. The bottom line is that North Mascot needs to be retired and we can't let cost be an excuse to continue to be offensive to Native people. Diversity is a staple of North and the Indian mascot strikes a dissonant chord in relation to this. Let's make North a place where everyone feels welcome. Also, when we are competing in cross country, marching band or debate, let not our mascot be the cause of discouraging looks from our competitors, but let that occur when we win. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and 
if Lisa is watching at home, thank you for submitting your comments. Uh, next on our list is Ms. Chandra Bettelson. Hi, my name is Chandra Bettelson. I'm a teacher in this district and I'm also a parent. I speak on behalf of myself only. First, I want to acknowledge that this building sits on land that was usurped from the Kickapoo, Osage, Kansas people, and members of the Great Sioux Nation. When I first started teaching at North, I proudly wore the shirts with the feathers, arrows, dream catchers, and the image of the Indian head. I would clap my hands to the beat of the drums during pep rallies when they played the fight song. I've even done the tomahawk chop and dressed my daughter as a Native American for a dance recital. But in the past few years, I've learned things and have conducted research and have had discussions that have made me think differently about these imagery, these chants, and the Indian mascot. And I now believe that indigenous mascots are wrong. And non-native people dressing in regalia as if it were a costume should not be happening. And when you know better, you do better. I no longer support or wear spirit wear with our indigenous mascot, and I think it's time to change it. I know that none of us in this room had the idea to make Indians the mascot at North, a school that is 100 years old. But it is our job as educators in the school board to constantly reassess what goes on in our schools. A hundred years ago, our schools were segregated, and we have since acknowledged that this is a practice that should not be happening. As Maya Angelou says, when you know better, you do better. Our annual required staff training for the district about diversity and inclusion asked us to determine where we got our attitudes and stereotypes about certain groups. Was it through direct contact or exposure with that group, or secondhand contact through social media, movies, stories, books, or popular culture. And if it was the latter, how accurate do you think those exposures were? The regalia that our student mascots wear is neither accurate nor is Native American regalia a costume that can be worn. One cannot simply put on a costume resembling a Native American, especially if he didn't also bear the oppression, genocide, forced removal, and ongoing systemic racism that comes with being Native American. We've already seen several schools in this nation change their mascots, some because they chose to and some because they, they were forced. A number of significant changes are being implemented and evaluated in our district in an effort to be culturally competent and responsive. I think this should be Thank one you. of them. Thank, Thank you, you for, for coming time. this evening. It's appreciated. Next on our list is Ms. Alicia Vincent. Children and teachers of color need to see positive representations around them. It's clear that Shawnee Mission North Indian themed images and class gifts have to go. These class gifts and images are a daily reminder to minority students that they are not operating in a safe space. This is not a case where kids need to tough it up. Appropriative native imagery scattered around the building are a visual reminder to, of tokenism and tell minority students and staff that discrimination will receive a platform here, not diversity. So, class gifts. I believe this is a generational concern. I can't tell you what the class gift was in 1995. My brother can't tell you about 1988 either. Alumni have attempted to make a comprehensive list of past class gifts, many of which appropriate indigenous cultures through stained glass, mosaic sculpture, and more. There's no room for discussions that they are honoring anyone because any one of these objects, when viewed independent of the school, don't have the artistic merit to be welcomed at museums like the Kemper or the Nelson. So if we, if we remove the medallion, the headdress, window, etc., what do we do with these objects? Well, I believe you can view this relocation as an opportunity. 
Through dynamic local partnerships, we could permanently relocate all of these gifts to a central location at the Johnson County Museum in the Arts and Heritage Center, and JUCO's Nerman Museum could even commission new work from Native artists in response to our 100 years of evolution. They just recently commissioned Native artists, so this would be in line with their commitment to American Indian culture. Financing this could be facilitated through the Mid-America Arts Alliance. First, though, we need to resolve that the solution is not to continue to make children like my daughters exist in educational spaces where the head of their tribal enrolled dad continues to be someone's sick idea of tradition. Thank you. The next person on our uh, list this evening is Karina White. Good evening. My name is Karina White. I'm a 2014 North graduate and I live in Mission, Kansas. Tonight, I represent an ever-growing group of current and future students and alumni that oppose the district's native mascots and demand to see actionable steps towards change. I understand that the board's decision-making process focuses on transparency. And in brief briefly talking about this topic, I've heard the phrase, we need to make sure we hear from both sides. In this case, there are not two equally reasonable sides to this issue. On one side is continued implementation of actively oppressive stereotypes. On the other side is growth and better care for our fellow human beings. There are not two sides to something that is clearly wrong, simply the opportunity to turn from it and do what is right. I am not Native. Native people shouldn't have to be at the face of this fight. We can't expect them to do the labor to fix our errors and mistreatment of them. We must do the work. As you're listening to arguments around this change, please thoroughly fact check. Fact check me. Fact check everyone else here. The history of our area is whitewashed, told from the perspective of the people in power. So many white people claim to have ties to Native ancestry, and in many cases it's simply not true, but ties back to American romanticism and us liking the idea that we might have come from Native people. A person who identifies as Native who claims that identity at all times and not just when it's convenient, will typically have a tribal ID. Check for these when someone is claiming to be native. Lastly, a quote from Wilson Hobbs, a teacher at the Quaker Shawnee Indian Mission. The Society of Friends in their mission work among the Indians has never made it an object to make Quakers of them and build up a church following. They felt it too great a weight for the church to carry a membership of half civilized people, end quote. This mission, which we honor through our name Shawnee Mission School District, existed solely to destroy the culture of na Native people in our area. The intention was never community, never inclusion. We are in no way honoring Native people with our continued use of them as mascots, but instead are honoring the people who stripped them of their humanity. Thank you. Thank you. Um, our next speaker this evening is Melissa Arreo. Hello, my name is Melissa Arroyo. I'm from Overland Park, and I graduated from Shawnee Mission North in 2010. I'm here to request that the Indian mascot be changed to a more appropriate one. During the time I attended North, I drank the Kool-Aid. I went to so many events that made reference to and appropriated Native American culture. Drums, face paint, feathers, the mascots. I felt a huge sense of pride for being a quote-unquote SMN Indian. And now, 10 years later, I am fully aware that I was complicit in the oppression and mockery of Native Americans and their culture. To any Natives who are listening, I am extremely embarrassed about it, and I'm very sorry. The truth is, no matter how we try to rationalize it, we were not honoring Native Americans. We were doing quite the opposite. Defenders of the mascot will say that compared to the numerous pressing issues that Natives face, like violence, poverty, suicide, a high school mascot should be the least of their concerns. 
To me, that's just an excuse. This is still an issue, nonetheless, and changing the mascot will give them one less thing to worry about. If that's not enough, I'd like to remind you that it's been three years since the Eastern Shawnee Tribe of Oklahoma rescinded permission to use the mascot. In the words of Chief Glenna Wallace, when the people who are supposed to feel honored feel disrespected, is it really an honor? Knowing this, are we really adhering to our diversity and equity mission statement? Are we providing students with an environment free of discrimination and preparing them for an inclusive global community? Endorsing any form of cultural appropriation of sacred regalia is not in line with that mission statement. This is an issue that we can't afford to ignore any longer. Let's make a decision that will not cause embarrassment to other graduates like me later down the road. Let's honor Native Americans by respecting the wishes of the Eastern Shawnee Tribe of Oklahoma and moving on with a new mascot. Thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker this evening is Mr. Ryan Beck. Hi, do I start? Yeah, okay. I'm Ryan Beck. I'm a student at Shawnee Mission Northwest. I'm going to be talking about coronavirus specifically because I know a lot of people have been talking about the human aspect. I'm going to talk about the contractual aspect of the agreement we had at the beginning of this school year for hybrid versus online learning. Uh, I want to preface this by saying I if it was just what I want, I would want to be at school. But since there is a virus, it shouldn't just be what I want. Like, I'm in multiple band classes. Being at school would be much better for the way I learn through those classes. But again, it's not about what I want. So from the, a contractual standpoint, the agreement we had at the beginning of the year was that if cases were above 10%, we would not be going back to school. We would stay in online learning. Uh, that, on my part, was a bit more of a verbal agreement than a written agreement, but there is legal precedent for verbal agreements to be upheld. So whether it's verbal or written, it can be upheld. So. Then the number was arbitrarily changed to 15%. This is already a breach of contract, but even if we ignore this change, we are past that 15% point, which is another breach of contract. Either way, this contract, which can be upheld in a court, is being breached, whether you're thinking of the 10 to 15% change or the fact that we're already past that 15% point and are still in schools. They yield my time, I guess. Has it hit the two-minute mark? That's ten seconds away. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank I have nothing else to say on it. It's just thank you for coming this evening. Um, it's appreciated. I don't know if you're aware that Dr. Fulton did send out an email today saying that secondary was going back to remote starting next week. I did see that. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to bring this up because in the future, if we do go back to hybrid learning, before that, before we're below that 10 or 15% point, then that would still be a breach of that contract. And if we continue in hybrid after we get to that point, then it would still be a breach of contract. Thank you. Thank you for coming this evening. Please let your social studies teacher know that you attended. Miss um, Lisa Feingold is our next speaker. You, the board, are our elected leaders. After last week's special meeting and Johnson County Board of Commissioners' apathetic response, there is no confusion about whose responsibility it is to make decisions in Shawnee Mission. 
Secondary families have from this Friday until November 30th to change learning models for second semester. As a parent, I need information to make a decision. Postpone the option change window until you are in a position to provide clear criteria and making and honoring the commitments necessary for teachers, staff, students, and families to reasonably consider an in-person model. Otherwise, prepare for a considerable influx of remote learners and ongoing staffing concerns. And if SMSD plans to allow sports for second semester and our community fails to get their act together, please consider making remote learning mandatory for participants. This is not about politics, it's about valuing human life. Thanks. Thank you. Our next speaker is Jay Meyer. Oh, Moyer. Apologies, Jay. Thanks, Heather. Mm -hmm. uh, hi, my name is Jay Moyer. Um, I want to talk to you about the mascot. Um, I am a graduate 2017 of Shawnee Mission North, and I just kind of wanted to outline the experience because obviously not everyone listening has gone to Shawnee Mission North. So from your first day of freshman year of high school, you walk into this beautiful campus, see all these different hues of red from the 25 times the district has changed the red color. Um, then you see Indian mascots everywhere. Um, you see pictures of indigenous people wearing feather headdresses and you see white people wearing them. You see you know, people who aren't indigenous using these mascots. On the freshman first day, you see depictions of, of the mascot on uh, cheerleaders' uniforms, and you see uh, sometimes even non-indigenous people wearing um, Native American attire, and then you see the cheerleaders doing the tomahawk chop. You hear the band play something that is very stereotypically associated with indigenous culture, and then you, you go about your day, no one questions it, no one tells you to question it, and all of a sudden, it's your, it's your life for the next four years. Um, this impacted me greatly as an adult uh, when I had an experience where I used the tomahawk chop outside of high school, and I um, really offended someone and who, was, who was more uh, culturally sensitive to that. Um, and I lost a good friend because of it. And I then felt as though the Shawnee Mission School District did not fully prepare me for being culturally sensitive to people, you know, outside of kind of my sphere of atmosphere, my realm. So as a Shawnee Mission North alumni, and this is just one story, think about Shawnee Mission North graduates roughly 400 people a year. Think about all the people that we're going out into the community that they're impacting, right? Um, some people may come and say, hey, well, I'm Native American and I like the use, all right? Well, I can't speak for them and I appreciate their views. You also have people from Haskell talk to um, people from Lawrence uh, who use, you know, Thank who you, are Native Kay. American. Thank you. Thank you for being here this evening. Our next speaker is Jill Jolliker. Is Jill here? All right, I'll put it aside. We'll move on. Um, Mr. Thomas Nido. My name is Thomas Nieto and I live in Overland Park. I was born and raised in Lawrence, graduated from Lawrence High in 2006. I'm an enrolled member of the Kiwa Pueblo in New Mexico. I'm here to petition you to change the Shawnee Mission North mascot. Let me tell you, attending a school with a significant number of Indian students in a town that is home to an all-Indian university, it is a slap in the face to see the Shawnee Mission North banner hang in my gym. 
But my most vivid memory is when Lawrence High commemorated their 80th anniversary of playing football at the Haskell Indian Nations University Stadium. This event was a huge deal. Guess who played us that night? In a stereotypical and disrespectful manner, Shawnee Mission North brought the mascot, drums, and their marching band. The mascot and the band began by leading the crown while they performed the tomahawk chop, and the beat of their drums filled the air. We were appalled. These people do not understand the cultural significance of the drum, much less the regalia that they wear. It is not an honor, it is a mockery of the Shawnee and all Indian people. A decade later, in 2017, the Intertribal Club at Lawrence High brought the attention to this issue, leading the charge and removing the banner. The main resistance I hear from people in the community to changing the mascot come in one of two forms. The first, that people believe they are honoring Indians, specifically the Shawnee tribe. However, it is not an honor when you take their religious practices and turn them into a halftime show. The second is tradition. People say it's my school tradition. How dare you take that away? That statement is fundamentally wrong. It was never your tradition to begin with. It was a tradition that was stolen from native people and appropriated. It's like if you bought a stolen car and you found out you had to return it. It was never yours to begin with. As the chief of the Eastern Shawnee tribe of Oklahoma said, if the people who are supposed to feel honored feel disrespected, is it really an honor? It is time to change this mascot. Do not be afraid to do so because it admits that a school tradition was morally wrong. You have the board set the power to set this right example for your students and community by honoring the wishes of the tribe. It's been three years since they rescinded their permission. Thank you. Our next speaker is David Nito. My name is David Nieto. I'm uh, recently moved to the area, uh, but I grew up in Lawrence and shared the same. I was there that same night that my brother just spoke of. I'm a, enrolled. We were both enrolled members of a federally recognized tribe, and I'm here to tell you that it is fundamentally wrong to be using this, and I'm here to petition that you change it. This is 2020. It's not 1940, and it's time for it to change. Um, playing sports against your school uh, really kind of and watching you just butcher and destroy someone's culture that you say you honor is appalling. And for the fact that we have to constantly come up here to different places, fight Washington uh, football team, fight Kansas City's football team, fight this, we're exhausted. It's over. Listen to us. We're telling you it's not an honor. Oklahoma rescinded it in 2017, and yet... They had no response from this body of people. That should have been your wake-up call. We shouldn't even have to have this discussion because it should have already been taken care of. This is, this is something that's been fighting not just now, but my dad has been fighting this since 1950. He's in his mid-70s now, and he's still fighting it. He wasn't able to come tonight and talk to you guys because of some other uh, health issues that he had. But this is something that's been fighting and been just damaging to young Native peoples for a long time. We had recently had an 11-year-old girl on the news trying to tell you guys it's over. Get over it. And it shouldn't be the fact that we have to, as Native peoples, come up here and say, hey, listen to us. You know, it's offensive. Get over it. And in here, you guys, well, it's an honor. Well, it's not an honor. You wouldn't do this to any other race. And you know you wouldn't, and if we brought that up, you would tell us, no, that's offensive. What, what's different here? Thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker is Samantha Henningkamp. Hello, my name is Samantha Henningkamp. I live in Casey Moe in Squire Park. 
I'm speaking as a counseling psychology doctoral candidate and have the backing of several of my peers who work in mental health. I speak from the position of materials published by the Society of Indian Psychologists and the American Psychological Association. My message in sum is to remove all indigenous mascots and associated symbols and imagery due to their inherent racism and its negative impact on the human psyche of people of all cultures. From the Society of Indian Psychologists statement on retiring Native American mascots, mascot exposure can be detrimental to self-esteem, community worth, and imagining achievement among Native students. I'm not going to cite each of the research for time purposes, but you can contact me if you want to learn more about the research. Exposure to sports mascots can negatively impact the mood of Native students when compared to white students at the same institution. The differences in responses remained even when the mascot images were judged to be quote-unquote neutral rather than controversial. Although it has been argued by proponents of these mascots that the images honor Natives by presenting a positive image of the people and culture in mainstream society, the research has found that mascot images actually were associated with increased negative stereotyping of Natives by whites. In addition, mascot exposure for white Americans may make it more likely that they will stereotype other non-Native minority groups. It is clear that exposure to mascots represents a risk to health and mental health for American Indians and Alaskan Natives, as well as to other non-whites groups and members. From the APA resolution recommending the immediate retirement of American Indian mascots, the continued use of American Indian mascot symbols, images, and personalities undermines the educational experiences of members of all communities, especially those who have little or no contact with indigenous peoples. It establishes an unwelcome and oftentimes hostile learning environment for American Indian students that affirms negative images and stereotypes that are promoted in mainstream society. It has a negative impact on the self-esteem of American Indian children at the school using Native American imagery, undermines the ability of American Indian nations to portray accurate and respectful images of their culture, spirituality, and traditions, presents stereotypical images of American Indian communities. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm going to try again for Jill Jellicure to see if she's here. She emailed us, Heather, that she wouldn't make it um, due to child care concerns just before. Oh, okay. Well, great. Then um, thank you, everyone who was here this evening to speak. Um, we do switch over at 6 o'clock for administrators to be able to sit in the room. If there's room after administrators come in, you're welcome to stay for the meeting. Um, I don't know, Dr. Fulton, since we have a couple minutes, do you just want to stay? With the... Okay. All right. Okay. Well, we will move on um, to item 2.2 of the superintendent report and turn it over to Dr. Fulton. Okay. Thank you very much. Well, I uh, appreciate everybody being here, and uh, thank you to our speakers. Well, I want to, we have a, some great sharing tonight, uh, but first of all, I want to start off with an announcement that was sent out earlier today to families and staff, and the announcement was this. That beginning on November 30th, all secondary students, uh, middle and high school students, will return to remote learning. Um, the, uh, they'll continue remote learning until the end of first semester, which is January 22nd, 2021, and this was, decision was made due to having a shortage of uh, substitutes to support instruction. Today's decision allows us to shift a number of substitutes from secondary to the elementary level in order to, uh, to help us conduct in-class instruction with our youngest learners. You know, this was something that we had talked about last Monday. We've been watching the data very carefully and uh, it's just getting decidedly worse. For example, we have 50 unfilled positions today and that number's growing. And that's not a sustainable model. So it's very important in a COVID-19 world that we run our schools according to defined protocols. Uh, that's the expectation we have for ourselves. 
and that's what we're, we're uh, committed to doing here by deploying resources from some of our resources from secondary to elementary. Now, as our SMSD uh, dashboard shows, and we updated that today, the number of isolations and quarantines uh, necessary for our staff members is increasing in ways that you might expect given the exponential increase in positivity rates for our community. We're carefully monitoring conditions in schools and in the district for positivity rates, source of transmission through contact tracing, and staffing. Transmissions are uh, primarily community-based with very few trace back to schools. Now, if one or more of these areas becomes problematic, positivity rates, source of transmission being in schools, which we know through contact tracing or inadequate staffing, uh, then we're going to have to make decisions about the mode of instruction with student and staff safety in mind. And this includes uh, moving elementary to remote only learning if necessary. Parents need to make sure and plan accordingly. Now look, we're going to do our very best to give people plenty of notice should that have to happen. We gave a 14-day notice for the secondary students today. We're going to carefully monitor our data. Uh, we're going to make sure that we're keeping uh, elementary parents informed about what's happening. Uh, but this is going to be driven in, in large part by what the data is telling us uh, the direction that we need to go uh, is. So um, there is a caveat in this statement. If at the building or district level we have emergency staffing shortages or health concerns, then we have to reserve the right to contact parents and call school off for that day or a series of days. Taking a step like this is disruptive, and it's only going to be done if absolutely necessary. You know, when you think about this, think, think of it like a snow day where you find out the night before the morning of. Again, we're trying to do everything we can to avoid any kind of emergency situations through good advanced planning and anticipating where these data are taking us in the days and weeks ahead. But in the case of, uh, of an unexpected staffing shortage or uh, if something happens with uh, health conditions around a building, or, so, or the district for that matter, we're certainly going to reserve the right to make uh, an immediate change if necessary. Again, not desirable, but it'll be done if we have to. Uh, we shared last week that staffing was our primary concern with keeping school in session. Tonight's announcement about secondary going to remote between, now, between uh, uh, November uh, 30th and January 22nd is a direct result of uh, staffing challenges that we face. It is not, uh, at least at this point in time, because of uh, COVID-19 transmission within our schools. We continue to see our schools doing an excellent job of implementing mitigating factors such as social distancing, mask wearing, hand washing, and comp completing David daily uh, COVID-19 assessments. Consistent with what we did at the start of this school year, when we're in remote only for secondary, then, and this be true for all staff actually, the, our staff will continue to work from their in-person building assignment. Implementing remote learning for our secondary students allows us to commit the staff, especially substitute teachers, to the elementary level in order to support in-person learning. Again, staff and students are doing an excellent job of keeping schools safe to remain open, but they can't do it by themselves. Staffing is a critical issue, and we need the entire community's help in keeping our schools open. Uh, 
We all have to work together to stop the spread of COVID-19 in our community. And that's in order to keep our elementary schools open to in-person learning and one day return our secondary students to in-person learning. So I know that this situation is something that none of us wants. It saddens all of us. This is not where as a community we hope to be heading into the holiday season. But at the same time, we should not lose sight of the fact that we have incredible work being done by students, staff, parents, and community members doing their part every day to support community health. And we thank them for that. Uh, we just need to continue to be even more diligent as a community to make sure that we can flatten the curve. And that's going to take time and deep community commitment to make that happen. So with that, we want to go on to some other items. Uh, and as uh, we do in our regular meeting, announcing some of our community-wide celebrations and recognitions. This is uh, NEA's American Education Week. So to start us off, today marks the start of American Education Week. We encourage everybody to take part in the opportunity to celebrate public education and honor all educators who help reach, uh, to help students reach their full potential. As it says in our mission, the work to ensure students, we work to help ensure that students construct their own foundation for success and that is orchestrated by talented, compassionate educators and distinguished by an inclusive culture, engaged community, and robust opportunities to challenge learners to achieve their full potential. This week, we take time to celebrate everyone in our community who, even in the most difficult of times, helps move us toward this go as we live out our mission every day. Later in the meeting, a formal proclamation will be read urging all in our community to join us in honoring the Institution of Education and Shawnee Mission in America. And that proclamation is in under the action items, first item that we have under action. I'm very proud to share with you that Shawnee Mission students lead the state as uh, the Kansas Department of Education recognizes 125 students earning the Kansas Seal of Bioliteracy based on 2019-2020 results. This achievement is awarded by KSDE and recognizes any student who has attained proficiency in English and one or more other world languages. The seal of bioliteracy is intended to be a statement of accomplishment that recognizes a student's readiness for college, career, and engagement as a global citizen. So congratulations to all of those students. The National Speech and Debate Association, or NSDA, has named Shawnee Mission East Speech and Debate Team as one of the top 100 schools in the association for the 2019-2020 school year. Shawnee Mission East ranked 49th out of more than 3,000 schools nationwide. As named one of the top programs in the nation, this is the most prestigious membership award the association can bestow upon a school, and that's according to the NSDA statement. We congratulate all of the competitors and Shawnee Mission East Speech and Debate Coach Trey Witt. Additionally, several mission, Shawnee Mission schools earned a club award based on their NSDA strength points, including Shawnee Mission Northwest, Shawnee Mission South, and Shawnee Mission West. So congratulations to all of our debaters at, at each of our high schools in our school district. Great job. And we have, a, uh, we have a, a great recognition tonight. I think we may have this person in the house maybe sitting right down there, as a matter of fact. Chief Communications Officer David Smith was awarded the 2020 
Distinguished Service Award from the Kansas School Public Relations Association. The honor is given to someone who has dedicated more than five full years to the school communication profession, advocates for public education, remains committed to a creative, dedicated, and professional approach to school communications, and is active in the Kansas School Public Relations Association. Uh, I'll also note that this year under Davis leadership, the communications department earned four Golden Achievement Awards from the National School Public Relations Association. These national recognitions are for exemplary work in all aspects of uh, school communications. So we want to congratulate David uh, Smith and his team for their outstanding work. Congratulations, David. A great accomplishment. Well, tonight, I'm especially glad to share that we are honoring two Shawnee Mission All-Stars. Uh, first up, I want to invite Kent Glazer from Shawnee Mission North to introduce our first honoree of the evening. Good evening, everybody, and thank you for the opportunity uh, to represent Shawnee Mission North tonight. Shawnee Mission North is a special place, but it's special because of our students, our community, and our staff. Uh, with, with me tonight is one of those staff members, Carla Herrera-Madrano, and her husband, this is Carla over here to my left, and her husband, Ricardo. Uh, she is being recognized tonight. Her and I started approximately the same time. We are in our fifth year together. She works in our, our West Wing with our special education population. And if you're familiar with that program, you know that that is a unique uh, set of students and a unique opportunity uh, to where we have to have staff members with a very special skill set. Carla is exceptional at that special skill set. She is here with me tonight. Um, I could go on and on. Uh, I am very proud of her and very proud of what she does in the West Wing, but I think there's also a video that can probably sum it up a little bit better than I can. So please watch this video. Volume? Okay, for just a minute, we'll get it restarted and we'll get the volume going here. I picked Mrs. Ballsinger, nominated for this award, as uh, she's awesome. <laughs> she's very funny. She's, you know, always super positive about things, and she keeps it. I picked Mrs. Ballsinger, nominated. Carla's one of those people that is always uh, kind of brings out the best in everybody else. She's always got a good personality. She's always um, always happy, always you know willing to do whatever, always willing to step forward. Um, she's never the person that waits to do something. If she sees something, she steps forward and takes care of it. For me, it's been. Uh, wonderful because she has an uh, undergrad in speech language pathology and uh, she has a lot of skills in that area and she's been fantastic uh, support. Everybody that works with Carla 
whether it's our students, um, uh, our staff, and our parents, everybody loves her demeanor and how she approaches her job every day. Carla is able to um, infuse those abilities that these individuals possess and find ways to stretch their maximum potential. She sees the student so clearly and so fully that you know she's able to recognize problems before they occur and to address things in a way that prevents more significant problems from developing. She's what we need. This is a, a, a valued employee of Shawnee Mission School District for sure and we're just very, very happy to have her here. I like to think that when I walk out of here that somebody like her will be stepping in and um, so seeing her have the opportunity to move towards that would be something that I would really, I'd love to see for her because I think I'd love to see it for, for the students as well. Carla, congratulations. Well, we couldn't be more prouder of you. Congratulations, Carla. That is, you deserved this so much. Uh, it's about time. You need this recognition. I want to thank you from the bottom of our hearts at Shawnee Mission for all the dedication that you provide our students. She makes everybody's job so much better, so much easier, and um, she's just one of those people that makes it easy to come to work every day. As without any further ado, this is Carla. Thank you, thank you. I just need to give a shout out to the rest of my fellow paras and my teachers because without them, I wouldn't be the person that I am with these kiddos. I learned so much from them and also from my kids as well. They teach me so, so much. So this feels good. <laughs> Thank you, it means I'm doing my job right. So <laughs> I'm gonna continue to do good. So thank you so much. Thank you. Carla, congratulations. And now we wanna welcome Dr. Chris Case from Hawker Grove Middle School to the podium to introduce our next honoree. So I too want to thank you for the opportunity to recognize a member of the hardworking staff at Hawker Grove in Ms. Kim Balsinger. Uh, Kim Balsinger is our band teacher at Hawker Grove and uh, one of the things that I appreciate about her is that no matter what the life brings her, whether it's things going on in her personal life or the struggles of teaching through a pandemic, um, she puts a smile on her face and there's not a person in the world that would think that there's anything going on in her mind, right? Uh, and so that is an outstanding uh, trait to be able to bring to uh, her classroom, whether it's the Friday funnies that she puts out for students or her humor, uh, to be able to keep the a very uh, difficult situation uh, very light. But even more so than that, I think what really makes Ms. Balsinger special is that she really epitomizes what we talk about at Hawker Grove in building and sustaining caring relationships. Uh, that is the heart of what she does. Uh, we preach that, we talk about that, uh, but Ms. Balsinger lives that each and every day. Um, to the, the effect of a number of students that uh, share things with her, whether it's during class of struggles that they're going through or she uh, does a jazz band club after school and she gives of her time not only to teach students the fundamentals and skills that go along with being a strong musician, um, but that next step also of teaching students the fundamentals and skills that go along uh, with being a strong human being. And so it is my pleasure to introduce you to uh, Mr. Dan Balsinger and our all-star, Miss Kim Balsinger. And then your low A 
I picked Mrs. Balsinger, nominated for this award, as uh, she's awesome. <laughs> she's very funny. She's, you know, always super positive about things, and she keeps it light and airy, and she's always on top of her game. You know, that, that's just what's so nice about having her as a band teacher. So one of the things that I think is just really outstanding is that she was nominated by a number of her students. And so that says to me, students love her and she's creative. Uh, she is full of energy. Uh, she's always looking for things to help students make connections to the learning. She had done so much for us as a teacher and as just an adult in our lives that we just felt that it was something that she deserved. It was like twice a week we were seeing her, talking to her, and she was there for anything. She told us stories about herself. We told her stories about us, about what you need to talk about, but I've never had one who's like sitting down with me in a group and like talking to me and relating with me and just telling me about life. She really made you learn how to have faith in yourself. And it was really just that and like, her helping us with homework. Hey, Ms. Balzinger, I need help with this. I know you don't teach math, but I really need help. She did it for any student who would allow her to. She just had that really close relationship. Oh. Ah, there it, it makes is. a huge exactly. impact on you immediately. Yeah. Like, really, that's that's what happened to me. And all, all you really have to do is ask. <laughs> uh, I was really shy at first, and we started talking. She introduced me to a really nice counselor and I find it really hard for me to find uh, adults that I trust and you know finding finding her and her just being there for me. It's like I'll be having a bad day then I'll walk in here then just get to play some music have a fun time and then just go on with my day feeling better than I walked in. Just really helping our students to feel like even though there's this pandemic taking place um, that we can learn. I'd say to anyone who having, you know, personal issues going on in their life, she's definitely one of the best people to go to. Is that she's just a beautiful person. And like I said, I'm not trying to butter her up or anything, but she really is. Inside and out of class, she was just amazing, super sweet. If you ever needed anything, if you ever having a bad day, she would do almost anything for you. I want to say that I miss her a lot, and I wish that, you know, this pandemic would be over so I could actually just hug her again. <laughs>
Kim, congratulations, uh, and again to Carla as well. And we just we're so proud of all the work that you do, along with along with all of our wonderful staff. So uh, that concludes my report this evening. Thank you. Well, moving on to the board report, Miss um, Borgman, do you have a SMAC PTA update for us this evening? No, oh, that's okay. Do you want me to circle around and come back? Perfect. Um, Ms. Embry, do you have an update from the Education Foundation for us this evening? Sure. I was just going to congratulate Shawnee Mission Education Foundation on having their first ever virtual fall breakfast on November 3rd. Um, that actually, the video is now online for anyone who wants to go and see what that event looked like. It's at smef.org. Um, and I think we'll have a fuller update later, but they also did announce uh, 1.7, the Scholarship Shawnee Mission Program, which is, of course, where we kind of provide advanced recruitment for students into college. Um, they delivered $1.7 billion of scholarships to Shawnee Mission students. I think we'll have a fuller update later, but they've been very busy over the last month between breakfast and cranking out $1.7 billion for our students. That's awesome. Thank you. Um, Reverend Guy, do you have an update for us from the KSB Board of Directors? Just a reminder that the annual conference is coming up, and I believe Mrs. Wintering sent us all um, the schedule for that so you can kind of see what some of the workshops will be. It's all virtual this year, um, but you do need to register, so you need to let Mrs. Wintering know if you plan to attend. Um, there's going to be lots of great guest speakers and great workshops and also some kind of social times to get to meet other people from other school boards around the state. So I encourage you, even if you can't participate in all of it, if you can um, attend a good portion of it, please go ahead and have Mrs. Wintering get you registered. And I think you'll, you'll have a great time and learn a lot. That's all. Thank you. Um, Dr. Sinclair, do you have an update for us from the legislative liaison position with KSB? The um, legislative committee met on November 7th and we finalized the legislative platform for 2021 and that, so the committee approved it out and it'll be going to the full delegates for a vote. Thank you. Um, on, during the, during the, in December, yep. Yeah. And then, uh, Ms. Goodburn, do you have an update for us from the Policy Review Committee? I know we have a couple items for final reads this evening. Exactly. Uh, yes, we do. We have two for um, final reads, uh, second reads, and we have one policy for first read tonight. Um, our next meeting is Thursday, December 3rd, I believe. Um, so. Thank you. And then, Mr. Stratton, do you have an update for us from the Finance and Facilities Committee? Uh, there's no update. We did not meet since our last board meeting. Thank you. And I'll come back to you, Ms. Borgman, from SMAC PT. Yeah, thank you. So um, the SMAC Clothing Exchange is open, and it's open each Thursday evening from 4 to 7. Masks are required with social distancing and a limit of up to 10 shoppers, preferably no children with shoppers if possible. Free socks and underwear can also be received during this time. Proper ID must be shown reflecting the SMSD district. If a school or club would like to do a donation drive for new socks or underwear or to volunteers on Thursdays, please contact the SMAC PTA at smacce at smac-pta.org um, or you can just look on um, the SMAC PTA website. Um, join your PTA today and you can go to your school's website or PTA website for details. Um, additionally, students have turned in PTA Reflections artwork 
the contest for their artwork with the theme, I Matter Because, and winners will be honored in a virtual open house on December 8th at 5 o'clock. And finally, the State PTA Citizenship Essay and Poetry Contest is in full swing with the theme, Caring for My Community Looks Like, with entries due December 7th. And that's it. Thank you. Okay, we'll move on to the board financial report. Um, I'll turn it over to you to introduce Mr. Knapp. Thank you very much. Yes, uh, Russ Knapp, our chief financial officer, will provide you with uh, this month's financial report. There we go. Sorry about that. So like I said, tonight's um, financial reports are through October of 2020, the first third uh, part of the fiscal year. I wanted to highlight three items tonight, a couple updates and then a new item. Um, the first one I wanted to give you an update on the CARES Act fund. Um, as you recall, I mentioned in prior board meetings that Johnson County, through their CARES fund, they obligated $1.2 million to Shawnee Mission School District, and then we had to file a claim and we would be reimbursed for any of our COVID expenditures. So. Uh, November 4th, I went ahead and filed that claim. Um, I anticipate uh, a claim of $1.5 million, and I anticipate being uh, fully funded the $1.2 million that they obligated to us. Um, so with that, then an update on our CARES fund money. Assuming that we do get the $1.2 million in reimbursement, and there's about three items on tonight's agenda, um, and some future commitments. We are sitting at about $786,000 available of Shawnee Mission CARES Fund. Okay. The second thing I wanted to update you on is the Food Service Fund. Uh, I've mentioned in the past that we're going to keep an eye on that. I just wanted to give you an update on that. Um, just looking at the month of October, our uh, expenditures exceeded our revenues by $550,000. Um, we anticipate November to be more uh, break-even. Um, so, accumulative through October, uh, that fund is deficit spending $550,000 to this point. So, we do anticipate expenditures outpacing revenue as we go um, further into the fiscal year. So, we're going to keep a close eye on that. Uh, as you know, our funds cannot be in the hole. they got to be zero or, or greater. So if it comes to it, the operating funds would have to absorb any of those excesses. Okay. And then the third thing, I wanted to give you an update on our operating funds, and that's on the screen. So I'll work off of that. Um, as you know, we're one of the first schools to be audited by KSDE and they completed that audit uh, two weeks ago. And so here are the numbers from uh, the audit. Our enrollment headcount um, actually went down $1,504 from what we budgeted. Now that's headcount, and it does, it does not have an impact in this fiscal year. Because if you recall, we take the greater of the two prior years. So we'll be working off of 2018, 2019, FTE numbers, okay? So there will be no financial impact this year. 
Um, so the weightings will have an impact this year. So I'll kind of just go through them. The bilingual education was down close to 12%, and that was going to result in a $276,000 less in general state aid. Um, vocational is CTE, career and tech ed, down about $58,000. Four-year-old at risk, $173,000. That is simply because we had 76 less pre-K students in that program. Um, at risk is based on your free lunch count. We had um, 452 less free lunch kids uh, than we budgeted for, and that number will grow because the, the feds are requiring us to do the, the federal verification. That hasn't taken place yet. Uh, we usually lose about 50 to 75 kiddos in that audit as well. So that's, uh, so as you can see, the at-risk is the biggest chunk at a million dollars. High density at-risk, another $100,000. New facilities, um, only 13,000, and that's Brookwood Elementary School, so that's the last year we get new facilities and then it goes away. Transportation, we are grandfathered in still for, for, based on the 16-17 school year, so there's no impact this year on uh, transportation. Correlation, high enrollment is just part of the, the uh, their calculation. We're going to be close to $6,000 down there. Cost of living is going to be $80,000 down. And then we'll get a little bit of an increase for virtual students at $48,000. And that's from um, Project Finish. So when you're 18 to 19 years old, it's considered virtual. If it's 19 and older, it's funded differently. Um, just another layer complexity in our school finance formula. So general state aid is going to be about $1.7 million down. These numbers are going to be pretty true. They'll, they'll hold out. Um, there's no miracle on these numbers. Um, they'll, they'll move a little bit, but not very much. The LOB impact on that will be $550,000 less. So between general state aid and LOB, about $2.2 million down in revenue. Um, a couple of the other items that I wanted to mention in our other funding, what we consider our other funding is facility rentals, because you know we're not renting our, our facilities at this time. We budget about $1.3 million at the start of this year for that. And so we're estimating uh, perhaps $300,000 in revenue for that year, so that would be about a $1 million down. And then the preschool tuition, again, all our pre-K enrollment is down, and we expect $224,000 in revenue there. So just what we know now at this point, um, we anticipate about $3.5 million less in revenue. That number will grow between now and the end of the year. We still have our SPED reimbursement, which we don't find out until May. So we, we have to figure out what that is. Um, interest revenue doesn't look very good at this point as well. Um, so... There's probably a little more bad news on the horizon, um, but on the opposite, on the expenditure side, we do anticipate considerable fallout from a lot of vacancy positions that we're just not able to hire. So we'll be taking a look at that in the next couple months. We hope to have a pretty good projected expenditure number sometime in January. Uh, that's a little more entailed. Allison Starosky does that, and she does a very good job, and it'll, it'll take all the month of January, or I'm sorry, the month of December, to see what, what we look like on our expenditure side. 
And that's all I wanted to report tonight. So if there's any questions. Yeah, we've got a lot. Mr. Stratton. Um, could you help me with the, uh, the at-risk numbers there? Mm -hmm. So with the decrease in the at-risk numbers, um, is that part of the 1,500 students that we don't have on the rolls this year? What, would, what, what can we attribute that decrease in at-risk well, you're going to? Well, uh, all student meals are free. So there's no incentive for, for families to complete the free lunch application. Okay. So they're going to be down for that reason. And then probably the second reason is enrollment is down 1,500. So they're going to fill that in the free lunch count as well. All right. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Reverend Guy? Uh, I also had a question about school lunches. Um, since our lunches are all being reimbursed right now, can, can you tell us why um, food service is is in the hole as much as they are at this point mm -hmm. um, you have all the labor cost um, and that's not going away so we'll probably consistently spend about a million dollars a month in our expenditure side that's what we anticipate and mo most of that is labor and benefits because um, they're still showing up to uh, make hot hot lunches and breakfasts and and the sack lunches so where we're hurting is that there's no student revenue coming in for student meals. All we're getting is federal. So the more, the more meals we can provide, the more federal dollars we can get, and our labor will stay the same. So, um, for example, in October, we, we received about $600,000 in federal dollars, but in November we anticipate $1.1 just because we, did, we had 35 days of of lunches in October where we only had maybe 25 in September. But your costs are going to be the same. So the federal reimbursement does not cover labor costs. It's just the cost of the food itself. No, it, it's just a set rate that they reimburse you per meal. And so we have to control our cost. Okay, thank you. I'd like to add to that. We're, we're simply not serving the same volume of meals that we would if kids were coming to school every day eating breakfast, eating lunch, eating off the a la carte menu, that sort of thing. So it's, it's simply a volume thing, and you still have the labor in place. That's correct. Ms. Embry? Can you remind me, Russ, I know this decrease in headcount doesn't affect our funding from the state for two years, or like if, if this enrollment headcount stays at what it's at, when will that hurt our revenue? That will come into play um, two years out. So 2022-23 school year, this year will come into play. However, if we can, we're going to assume we're going to have some type of a rebound uh, in 21-22. So 22-23 will probably be based on 21-22 and not this year. Okay. So we really need that, a good rebound next year. And if we don't like, if we don't have that rebound, what would this kind of a decrease in headcount, um, if if that's what's factored into our revenue, what would it, that do it'd to be our funding? About forty-six hundred dollars per headcount. Can you do that math in your head faster than me, Russ? <laughs> so fifteen hundred times forty-six hundred. Well, it'd be four point six million. Thank you. You're fine. On uh, for a thousand, so. David, there he goes. You need somebody Thank you, sharp. Thank you, David. <laughs> I'm just curious. I want to put that in context and know what worst case scenario to be prepared for. Thank you. Yes. 
Are there any other questions for Mr. Knapp? Seeing none, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Thank you. All right, it looks like we will now move on to the strategic plan update, item 3.1, and I'll turn it over to Dr. Fulton and his team to provide that update. Okay, very good. And we actually have two presentations tonight. The first presentation will be on the bond, on the bond update, and the second presentation will be around our diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion work. Each of these is tied into our strategic plan, so we'll get right into it. If you can go to the... Uh, if you're following along with around the screen or um, on the attachment, Strategy 5 bond update is the one we're going to start with. So, um, you know, everything, this, this, I'm going to make some general statements that apply to both presentations. Everything that we do goes back to our strategic plan. That is our North Star. So, it, it's guided by our mission and beliefs, it's also informed by our objectives that really get us honed in on student learning, which is what we're here to do. We're all here to help children learn. And so whether we're talking about the bond or diversity, equity, inclusion, or in January when we do kind of a major update on, on academics, it all comes back to that focus. So tonight we're going to talk about uh, some topics that relate to our specifically to our strategic plan. They include the bond referendum, uh, what we're going to do for our communications plan, our bond project overview, the elementary rebuild process, and then we'll have time for the board Q&A after this group presents, and then when they're done, the next group, group will come up. So that's how the evening works. Dr. Atha is uh, actually going to be kind of orchestrating both of these presentations. So, Dr. Ethan, I'm going to turn it over to you. Thank you. Next slide. Study Plan Act. Um, that's the strategy that, that we use in our strategic plan. Uh, and, and in reference to facilities, that has led to the bond referendum that's before you, that's before our uh, taxpayers in January of 2021. Over the last two years, the district has conducted a community-wide study and planning process in order to bring forward a $264.2 million bond proposal. This referendum provides sustainable budget recommendations to reduce teacher workloads, as well as long-range facility renovations that will meet the needs of our students and their learning uh, well into the future for probably 15 to 20 years out. Our community will determine with their vote on January 26, 2021, if this plan will be put into action. Um, administratively, we cannot promote a yes vote on this referendum. But we can provide information, detailed information regarding this bond referendum that our voters can make an informed vote on, on this referendum. And that is really our goal. But again, we cannot promote it. We cannot promote a yes vote. But we certainly can er encourage people to, to vote and to become informed. 
I'd like to share a little information with you, uh, some ballot information. Uh, the bond referendum proposal will be conducted by mail-in ballot only. This is not Shawnee Mission's first experience with a mail-in ballot. On January, in January 2015, the community stepped up and supported a $223 million uh, bond referendum, and that was through a mail-in ballot. Some other important dates that I'd like to draw to your attention as well as our community's attention. December 28 is the last day to register to vote in order to automatically receive a mail-in ballot at home. Uh, late voter registration is about a week long, December 29th through January 5th, 2021. A patron needs to send in an application for a ballot. On January 5th, 2021 is the last day to apply for an advanced ballot. And an advanced ballot is necessary if the voter needs to have the ballot mailed to an address other than the address where the voter is registered or a mailing address other than the one currently on the voter registration record. It must be a physical address and not a PO box. On January 6th, Patrons should be watching their mail because they should receive a mail-in ballot in their personal mailbox. On January 26, all ballots must be received at the Johnson County Election Office by 12 o'clock noon. This information that we're providing to you this evening is on our website. It's not currently on the Johnson County Election Office website but you can expect it to be there um, by the 1st of December. With that said, we'll move on to our communication plan. As Dr. Atha mentioned, uh, our job is to share information about the bond referendum. So we're gonna be doing that in a variety of different ways. Obviously this year is a little bit different. The one thing we are not gonna have the ability to access is a lot of face-to-face -face communication, but we'll be using all of our platforms and different modalities to communicate. Um, we will begin, um, I wanna talk through some things and then I'll show you our website. We've got a series of uh, weekly uh, information updates that'll be going out via various forms of social media and will be placed on our website and we will go through all of the different aspects of the bond spaced out over time between now and the election. Um, we also will be, we have shot an informational video that went out last Friday. Um, and if you haven't uh, had a chance to listen to it, I know that we have found a star in the young woman who did the video. She was amazing. So if you haven't listened to it, please do. Um, but we'll be doing a series of those. It's giving some visual uh, demonstrations of what we're doing with the proposed bond issue. Um, we will have an issue of Inside Shawnee Mission, which is coming out at the end of the month, which has information about the bond. And we're doing a special edition, which will come out at the end of December, which will be solely devoted to the bond. And that goes to, it's mailed to every household in the district. So that's one that goes to all of our patrons. Um, we will, again, we'll be working through January. Once we get into January, we will have yard signs available to share that, can be, that will encourage people to vote. 
Um, so those will be available and shared in early January as we get closer to the election. Um, as I mentioned, we do have a bond website. And this website, it is available, you, can, you see here, it's, um, you can get to it from any page on the district website. Actually, you can't see it, and why is that? That's weird, okay. Let me see here. I'm not sure why you can't see it. Hmm. Um, oh, I know, I, I, I think I know. Let's see. Just a second, there we go. All right, sorry about that. There, that's what I was looking at when I couldn't figure out why you couldn't see it, make it a little bit larger. Um, you can see it's available, this is from our homepage, you can get to it from any place on our website. Um, we've got, uh, Dr. Aether was talking about ballot information and very specific ballot information will be available here. Uh, as Dr. Fulton mentioned, this is, um, everything we do is wrapped around our strategic plan, so we provide a link to the strategic plan here. We have the bond goal here and some key facts about it. We've got information in the form of a bond handout that I will just click on and show you quickly. Um, this will be available in a variety of formats and we have it in both English and Spanish and we try to do as many of our materials in both languages as we can. Um, some, just uh, some brief uh, information about facilities and supporting student learning. Over on this side, there's a variety of different information. This was what Dr. Aether mentioned earlier, ballot information. We have, I'm gonna skip those two things for just a moment. We've got um, a page devoted to research and history that really gives you the history both of the work, and if you can see, the work began back in 2016 as we began to assess and evaluate all of our buildings. It's information about the work of, and you can get to all of those assessments here. The work of the action teams that began developing the strategic plan, the approved strategic plan, the facilities forums that took place last fall, and there's a video about those forums that's available here and the work of the Finance and Facilities Committee this spring, and you can see their work is linked here. The telephone survey that was done this summer, and those results are here, as well as the proposal that the board uh, passed in October, which is available here. So all of that information is available. Then we have the project overview, and this really gives uh, there you go. This really gives our patrons a chance to really dig in and see specifically what's available in the bond. And for that, I'm gonna turn it over to my colleague, Dr. Hubbard. Um, just real quickly, sometimes the people behind the scenes don't always get the credit that is due. And I think David's team, um, the work on this website has been very intense for weeks and they've done an amazing job. So. I would just like to do a quick shout out to Laura Harsh and Kristen Babcock, as well as all the other te teammates that sit in that department on their work on this website has been really quite amazing. But I wanna point out a few things in this um, overview in assuming that the bond re referendum were to pass, you can see under the proposed projects that we have several tabs here. So we're currently sitting on the elementary rebuild tab and each one of them lays out similarly. So we're not gonna go through all of them, but we do just wanna point out that 
When you go into each tab, you're going to see a timeline. This one happens to be three years because we have two rebuilds um, slated to come out of the ground in, in June. And then uh, that would be Westwood View and John Deemer. And then Pawnee following shortly behind that. And then following up with Rushton and Tomahawk. Um, some of these five schools can be built um, with students on site and others cannot. And so in those situations where that's not the case, we will need to move students. And so some of the timing of where we placed buildings um, in the building process would be to accommodate having to move students. Um, so it, I do think it's important to note that Rushton is one of those buildings we're still working with architects and construction management team in regards to whether that could be built on site or not. Um, if it could not be built on site, uh, excuse me, yes, if it could not be, those students would need to move. And so the Westwood View building, the new building would be open and so we would be using the old Westwood View building for the Rushton students during the Rushton rebuild. And so um, sort of the timing, um, all those factors played into the timing of what buildings went where. Um, David, if you could just move to the middle school and high school learning space upgrades. Every middle school and high school, as well as Horizons, um, will see some learning space upgrades. And you'll see the schedule there. Here you see a four-year process. We would do them all in four. Um, starting with Indian Woods, Shawnee Mission North, and Shawnee Mission Northwest. Uh, if you'll take a look at, uh, let's, let's take a look at ADA playgrounds just as an example. So again, um, all of the playgrounds would be listed in the five-year process. There's some samples of what those look like. And then um, in some cases, it might not be a full playground. For example, Corinth in year two. Uh, they, they have one playground that was redone last summer or the summer before, and so they would only be getting one of the two new spaces, so it, it kind of depends on the scope of the work, but all of that is noted. So there is a tab for each proposed project, and um, I, I do want to note that any, it's important to note, this is a tentative timeline, assuming um, a, a positive pass of the referendum in January, but also that this schedule is subject to change um, depending on um, just construction and um, different things, emergencies that may come up that might move someone closer to the front of the list or might move someone back depending on uh, you know, something that might happen with an HVAC system. So all of them are tentative to change, but um, it's a great website. It does give a lot of information. We encourage people to look at it and um, yeah, I'll pass it back to you, Mr. Okay. Smith. Uh, let's go back to okay and okay um, I think we're ready for this next section with the okay so this um, as we look at building a new elementary school the engagement process is so very important to get that feedback from the stakeholders in the community so we've put this process together so um, starting with a thought exchange. So we ask all the parents and all the staff members from the last seven rebuilds, basically, what did we do really well? And what are those things that we can continue to approve upon to make the next five schools state-of-the-art facilities? So 
right on this slide here, you can see that the word cloud are the main words that came out of the things that parents felt like we either did really well or they would like to see us continue to approve upon. There is a, a QR code there as well as the URL for the website, so you can see a full report if you would like to look at that information. Um, on the next slide, you're going to see the same thing for staff. Um, so full report is there avail available for you to peruse at your convenience. We also shared this um, in phase one of our meeting with Deemer and Westwood View last week. So this is just a, a timeline of the engagement process um, starting with, with phase one and ending with school opening in phase five. But each of these um, phases are intended to, it really goes back to that um, study plan act that Dr. Aether referred to earlier, but we're gathering input from our communities. Um, the entire staff was part of that process, as well as 12 um, parents or community members that live in those two areas. And, and we had our first meeting last Tuesday. We have our second meeting tomorrow. Um, meeting does not necessarily equate phase. Some of the phases might be um, Two phases might end up in one meeting, but I anticipate we will have anywhere from three to five meetings with parents and or that visioning team as well as the staff members at that building. In addition, you'll see um, right in there between phase three and phase four, we plan to put out a thought exchange to the entire community for Deemer and the entire community for Westwood View, as well as Pawnee, Rushton, and Tomahawk as we move forward. That would say... Here's what that meeting looked like. Here maybe some site plans, some schematics of, of what that building and site could look like, the learning spaces could look like, outdoor learning spaces could look like. Now what are your thoughts? Because we want the voice of the entire community. And so then we would share that thought exchange back with that vision team as well as the entire staff as we move forward into final design process and then ultimately opening great schools with, with their input. In our presentation, we're available for questions okay um if we can go around the table i think that'd be great um you want to start dr sinclair um could um thank you for that presentation for all the information loaded up on the website i think this is very very helpful um, and useful information um i i'm also very um appreciative of bringing systemically bringing in that community voice that end user voice into the process of the beginning of the rebuild i appreciate that proactive outreach i'm wondering if you could provide an example or speak a little bit more to maybe how some of that feedback uh, might have been received by the by the um, parents of the new rebuild or of the architects is it too soon to ask that question I don't know that it's too soon. I also don't know that there were a lot of things that shocked people. Um, at, because as we've gone, we've learned a lot of things, right? I'm just going to be up front. At Briarwood, there was a huge concern we didn't have enough storage. I mean, that, that's a big concern with teachers. We heard that. Um, the architects heard that. We listened to that. And if you ask people at Brookwood, they're going to be like, I think they got it right. There's a lot of storage here. This is great. So we weren't surprised. If you, David, if you would go back to the word cloud from the staff, the largest um, word you see is storage. So those were things that didn't really shock us. Um, 
there were there were things in the building they love. They love the walking trail outside around those buildings. Um, you know, the outdoor space is probably the thing that I heard most loudly that we would like more of. And I'm, I wonder how much COVID impacted that. But on the flip side of it, we have the outdoor learning space at Sunflower. And I would people at Sunflower will tell you that it's absolutely used regularly and that they love it. And so I definitely think that that's something we're hearing they would like to see in these new elementary schools that we don't necessarily have in the last seven rebuilds. Um, Dr. Ath, anything you want to add to that? Well, uh, Dr. Hubbard last week was at Deemer and I was at Westwood View, and, and, I, and I would like to say that, golly, that the, the teachers and the parents and the patrons, it was well attended and people were engaged. They were engaged in every activity. Um, and there's their questions they ask, and we couldn't answer them because some of those questions were going to come out to you tonight, and we wanted to make sure that you got this information first. So we did encourage them to tune in tonight to, to listen to the presentation. So I'm sure they did. And I'm really looking forward to meeting with uh, Westwood View tomorrow night, and I know Dr. Hubbard is as well at De Deemer. So. I would just add very appreciative to be there as well. And a lot of people were very thankful for the opportunity to be there. Thank you. Mr. Stratton? Uh, thank you for, for all this work on the website, the video. I agree, award-winning commentator. Um, fourth grade or whatever her grade is, it was, it was excellent. A lot of really good information on here. I'm gonna pose this as sort of a suggestion and, and maybe there's a question in it. And that is um, obviously we walk a fine line and that we are um, providing information, as much information as possible by doing this. Um, I'll suggest and then maybe you can tell me if there's any places that you think would, that are already acknowledging that we're in a pandemic. I don't want it to be missed that although we're in a pandemic, we really want to acknowledge it as opposed to pretend it isn't happening. So so mm -hmm. I, I share that as my observation and if you have things you want to add to that, but you know, we're going to the voters at a really tricky time. And so I just want to make sure that we speak to that in everything we're doing here. And I, I certainly appreciate that. And it's something that we have thought about and talked about a lot that as we message, it needs to be clear how this connects to the moment we're in specifically, yeah. as well as the place we'll be in 15 to 20 years. That's, that, thank you, and that's, what I, that's the part I forgot to leave out, and, and that is that giving it perspective. Right. And, and, and that's what I want it to be, you know, this is a long-term plan here, but I don't want to miss that we're, where we're at right now, too. Absolutely, thank yeah, you. Thank you, thank you for all your work again, it's Absolutely. excellent. I do think it's important to, to mention that our community survey was conducted in July, and we were into the pandemic about four months by then. Now I know it's certainly wearing on all of us more now than it did in July, than it did in March, and it's, it's, it's persistent. So it's difficult to know how our folks are feeling right now, but I'm sure people are tired. and. I know the meeting that we had with Westwood View last week that I had, and I think what Dr. Hubbard had with Deemer, it was pretty refreshing to talk about something else as opposed to COVID-19. Reverend Guy? I don't have any questions, thank you. 
Um, well, just go ahead. I, I do, yeah. uh, do you have a follow up on that one? No. So, okay. Ms. Borkman? I guess I don't have any real specific questions. I just think that, you know, thank you so much for doing such a great job on the communications plan and all the detail that's gone into every piece of this. I just think the real challenge, as you had, have spoken to, is communicating with the public in a pandemic. You know, it's not being able to um, meet face to face with people and invite people in to, to see and to talk with face to face and those kinds of things. And so, um, you know, what what other ways are we doing to try to engage the community to get information out um, about the bond and about what the money is being used for? Well, one thing I forgot to mention that Dr. Fulton is doing is meeting with various chambers of commerce and other civic groups, and he's been doing that via Zoom. Um, but he's been doing a presentation and sharing bond information with a variety of chamber groups. So that's one way. Um, I think we'll have to use, we'll use the channels we have and the tools we have. We're going to be doing a lot with video, trying to make short, engaging videos that we can share via our different social media platforms. Um, but and we've got a regular schedule for putting information out. Um, and we also have direct communication. And so the, the weekly updates will be directly emailed to the more than 30,000 people that we have on our email list. So it's going to be, it's going to be a challenge, but we're, we're going to be persistent. We've got a schedule, and we will be regularly sharing information. We will rise to the occasion. We will do our best. Thank you. David, I would also add, um, I, Dr. Fulton's been working with the chambers and civic groups, but also our PTA. I know he met with SMAC uh, PTA, and those are the voices, right? Those are the voices of our schools. And so I think that's um, a huge group that can help, help us support this. Yes, as the SMAC PTA liaison, if there's any um, schools out there that would like for a board member and or Dr. Fulton to speak um, about the bond, please reach out to us. We would, we'd be happy to provide information. So thanks for mentioning that. Okay. Ms. Embry? Yeah, I would echo that I am really, I love hearing what we've learned from previous rebuilds and how we're incorporating that into what we do next. I think that's just exactly the kind of iteration that makes us better all the time. Mm -hmm. um, my question is, I, I understand from previous conversations that we really can't go too much further than what we have here. We can educate the public, but we can't tell them how to vote or what, anything like that. Are there other groups that can do that that we will be looking to? And is that is that PTA? Is that the civic groups? Is is that uh, NEA? Is it our teachers? Like, how do we? Who are we passing the baton to when we've done all the educating we can do? There are any number of outside groups that could speak to the bond issue. Certainly, uh, there are some that will want to speak in favor of it. It's equally true of there's somebody that might be opposed to it as well. It's a great thing about freedom of speech. <laughs> um, so there are groups that I, I think will be involved in taking a positional view on it. And you mentioned a few, you know, PTAs, uh, uh, teachers through PNEA. Uh, other groups can do that. And so, you know, when people ask me about it, I say, well, I would just seek out those groups because I can't direct you to specific groups. I can just tell you in general that there are groups that I think will be supportive of the bond issue. And again, there may be groups that are not. That's an important thing to uh, to underscore because what we do 
as a school district is we provide information just like the information that you're seeing tonight and we make that publicly accessible to all people and so those folks that want to talk to me about the bond issue I'm happy to do so and I'll talk with anybody regardless of their particular position on it but I do think getting the information out about what this bond issue is about recognizing we are in the middle of a pandemic and if we can it's hard to do but if we can see beyond the moment to that point in time when the hopefully in the not too distant future when life begins to return to normal and all of these facilities uh, that we've used in the past we're going to use in the future as well and and honestly we've used all of our facilities this year and continue to do so just sometimes with in-person learning and sometimes not so no, does that help it is. I, I would add just one thing to, to Brad's point about um, kind of the moment we're in in the bond proposal is I, I do think there's some specific things around facilities that made it either harder or easier for us to reopen our schools. I'm thinking about ventilation systems and other things like that and having older buildings does matter. So, you know, whether windows open and close, I, I don't, I, I, I want, I know we're building for the future, but I also don't want to, I don't want people to ignore the fact that there were things about our facilities that did make it harder for us to safely, but have made it harder for us to weather through this, so. Right, and the newer facilities with HVC, for example, we definitely had options for perhaps getting cleaner air easier than in older facilities. I don't know, I'd look to to Bob if you would like to add to that, but Mr. Robinson or. Yeah, that is correct. We've had a conversation with a couple of engineers already. What would our design change be? Would there be anything that they would do differently? And basically, where we're at is pretty close, but there will be some, some changes were made. Almost all the new schools will take the MERV 13 filters. So, you know, that was a big thing that they wanted in there. So there will be some small uh, changes. We might do something different in the nurses' areas, but we're still evaluating that and see what we can come up with. Mr. Um, I appreciate, um, thank you for the presentation, and um, Mr. Smith, thank you for going old school and doing the print, because I think that a lot of our, um, I'm thinking specifically, although my mother's pretty tech savvy, the print she will read and, and circle my name in, so I'm glad that we're sending a, an additional um, piece on that specific to the bond issue for some of our patrons in the area that no longer have kids in school and are, aren't as tech savvy as some. So thank you for that. And thank you for this information about the mail-in ballot too. I think it would be great to be able to put that, I mean, so they, they understand, you know, where it is and that there's not going to be the drop boxes and the things that we just had in this other um, election, that they're going to have to put a stamp on it and actually send it. Or they could, I guess, take it to the actual Johnson County Election Office and put it in the box, I'm assuming. But I, I believe that is correct. We, we will, but we're going to have specific information, pictures of the ballot, and all kinds of things that we share. So awesome. it'll be very clear. How awesome. To, Thank you, you very much. Thank you. I do not have any questions at this time. Um, should we go back around the table? Or, yeah, go ahead, Dr. Sinclair. Uh, first, I just wanted to add, I, the Committee of Excellence, to add to your question, Ms. Embry has had long-standing history in the district of helping share information about the bond, and they work to advocate for the bond. Um, uh, I'm not sure who to ask. Um, I have a question about how, uh, looking at the timeline, so there was a presentation of trying to lay out general timelines of when different different parts of the bond would be 
um, implemented and how are those, could you speak a little bit to how the moving pieces are connected? Um, for example, Belinda, I think is listed as one of the schools to get um, maybe on the earlier end to receive a new playground equipment, but it's very possible that in the second phase of this long-term bond, they might be getting a new building. So they're listed like up there as the next kind of round of schools. So how would those two initiatives kind of marry? I know you all think about how all these pieces fit together. Really. Yeah, that's a challenge for us all the time. You know, if we have a roof coming due, that's part of the reason we did the long uh, uh, review of all our sites to try to get a handle on that. So, you know, if a, a roof needs to be replaced in, in uh, Westwood View in the last few years, well, if we're going to move forward with this, we wouldn't want to do that. So that's something that we constantly look at and try to evaluate. Uh, we won't be perfect with that, but we'll, we'll try to stay on top of it as we move forward. So like with the blender playground equipment at most just get moved or something like that and moved back in place? It could, and that's why we said this was a tentative agenda because we could, we could shuffle that around. I don't want to knock them out of getting <laughs> for, I was just trying to connect some dots. Thank no, you. No, you're absolutely right, which is something we constantly look at. That's the advantage of looking 18 to 20 years out and thinking about what the next iteration of facility needs will be. So you're not putting a new roof on something you're going to tear down two years later, potentially. I think one of the goals here is to, to try to knock out as many projects as we can early on. And that's why we're emphasizing we'd like to have two buildings started by June. Because I think our taxpayer expect us to optimize their tax dollars and spend them um, um, in, with care. And so the more projects, now is a good time to, to start these projects, believe it or not, in COVID-19. There are people out there, a lot of people wanting to work, and these projects would be going out to bid this spring in a timely manner that I think will, will help us a lot, providing the referendum passes. Mr. Strutt. No other questions. Um, are there any further questions around the table? Okay, thank you very much for this portion of the presentation. Okay, thank you. And uh, to the team, thank you very much. Uh, they've done a great job of, as you can see, engaging the school communities in thinking about what, you know, building on the past, learning from that, and uh, to prepare for a great future for all of our kids. So thank you for all of your work. And uh, as some of them transition, we'll have others come up for our, our uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion presentation. You know, originally when we were putting together uh, tonight's schedule, uh, we had incorporated into the evening a more detailed report on academics. But we don't like to fill these evenings with too much. And so what we're going to do is we're going to have an in-depth update for you on some key academic indicators at our January workshop. That'll be a good time to really sit back and look at our strategic plan, ask how are we doing, and what are our challenges in this that our COVID-19 is presenting to all of our learners in terms of their, their progress. But what we have done tonight, toward the spirit of this, is incorporated uh, 
some of our most recent ACT results into this presentation. And, uh, you know, the, the notion of diversity, equity, inclusion, and academics are directly linked. And so I think to, you're going to see that in tonight's presentation. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it back over to Dr. Atha, uh, Deputy Superintendent. Thank you, Dr. Fulton. Uh, I would like to introduce uh, Dr. Christy Ziegler, who uh, is Chief of Student Services, and she will uh, take it over from here and introduce our guest speakers. I think we're good now. All right, good evening, everyone. I will do introductions here in just one moment. Um, thank you for the opportunity to come and share the work that our team has engaged in in the areas of diversity, equity, and inclusion this evening. Um, we're going to start with our mission, and we're going to take a look at um, our destination here in just a minute. But our mission is very clear, to serve as a bridge to unlimited possibilities and ensure our students have the support to construct their own foundation for success. Key pieces to that, to do so, we have to continue to build an inclusive culture for all, um, continue to engage our community within our schools and around our schools, and challenge our learners through expanded, robust, and diverse opportunities. So let's start with the end in mind, the destination. Each student will have a personalized learning plan that prepare them for college and careers with the interpersonal skills they need for life success. We recognize our educators, our support staff, our families, and our community are key components in the work of building this vision for all students. The work that we continue to do in the area of diversity, equity, inclusion is woven through the fabric of our organization. And if we look at the circle and we look at the five aspects of the circle, you will hear um, and also receive in the written report that's available on board docs. All five of the areas that are represented on that circle are going to be touched on this evening through the work that is occurring with diversity, equity, and inclusion. Just a few of those, we're going to talk about culture, about communication, curriculum and instruction, um, as well as policy and practice um, this evening. As we are prepared to share with you this evening, it was increasingly evident the connections that have been established through many areas of our learning community. And this serves as a good indicator of our initial progress, yet we know there is continued work ahead. For tonight, we're going to spend our focus time on strategy two. We will relentlessly create a fully unified, equitable, and inclusive culture. With me this evening are members of the District Student Services team. I'm joined by Dr. John McKinney, Director of Student and Family Services, Dr. Tyrone Bates, Jr., Coordinator of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and we are cross-curricular teaming tonight, uh, and we have Dr. Dan Grumman from Leadership and Learning Team with us this evening. Dr. Grumman serves as the Director of Assessment and Research for the District. So with that introduction, we are ready to dig into the key topics. And Dr. Bates, I will pass to you. Thank you, Dr. Z. Um, good evening, and thank you for the opportunity to share a snapshot of the work we've been engaged in to meet the strategies outlined in our strategic plan. Tonight, we've structured our talk with you in the following way. Uh, what is DEI, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion? our education strategy, our policy strategy, our culture strategy, our practice strategy, our impact, and then ACT update. 
So take a moment and think of the first things that come to mind when you hear the question, what is diversity, equity, and inclusion? Here's the model that we've structured to define our work. Uh, our education strategy, our practice strategy, which is what we do daily, that builds the culture we have defined for ourselves, our culture strategy, safety relationships, culturally sustaining practices, creating an inclusive learning environment, et cetera. And then our policy strategy, uh, this is the work of the board to ensure that the education, practice, and culture are sustained for generations that come after us all. Attached to each segment of this model are the beliefs found in our strategic plan, a robust opportunities that challenge learners to achieve their full potential is attached to our education strategy. An engaged community uh, is attached to our practice strategy. And then an inclusive culture is attached to our culture strategy. So we're going to look at the strategic plan tonight through the lens of diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI. First is our education strategy. When we look at the strategic plan through the education lens of our diversity, equity, inclusion strategy, it lives primarily in strategy 231. In the written report, we, you will see the exhaustive list. However, tonight we'll highlight three. First is our equity practitioners, uh, where we currently have 33 staff that have been identified to serve as our equity practitioners. And in October, we began implementing part one of our training for our equity practitioners. The equity practitioners serve as trainers of trainers, with 33 staff members being trained and certified to deliver future content training as a part of a sustainability plan for this important work. Next is our instructional fair presentations, which is ongoing relevant diversity, equity, inclusion, professional development which has been integrated into other areas of professional development as well. For example, this year's um, instructional fair included a number of sessions on systemic racism and its lasting effects on education. The sessions included how to prepare educators for the pandemic and its impact on health, race, and student dialogue that may enter our classrooms this fall and beyond. How to shift from being an ally to an accomplice for the purpose of fostering racial equity in education and engaging bystanders and eradicating barriers that affect educational access for all students. And then finally, understanding the Black Lives Matter movement. And our final piece that we'll highlight today is our Kaufman Equity Cohort. Diversity, equity, inclusion is complex in nature. It's threaded throughout a system. As systems are complex, so too are their solutions. In the spirit of educating ourselves and in collaboration, we connected with a longtime partner of the school district and champion for change in our community, the Kaufman Foundation. In partnership with the beloved community, the Kaufman, the Kaufman Foundation is planning to support an equity, school, equity in schools cohort starting in January 2021. Our district was invited to join and has accepted an invitation to, for the equity cohort, which includes eight other metropolitan school districts who are seeking to conduct an equity audit. This year, in spite of the unique circumstances created by COVID-19, training continued with phase five of our deep equity training, a systemic transformation and planning for change. The next equity training has been scheduled for, that has been scheduled for December 10th and 11th of 2020, 
excuse me, 2020 will be postponed due to substitute coverage needs in the district. Although the training is postponed, the work still continues. Thank you. Higher. Right there. Good evening. Thanks. The next area to look at is um, through the lens of DEI's policy. And this shows up primarily in strategy 212. Much of the work our department has done and is in the process of doing is thanks to the vision and the commitment of the board. In, for example, in September of 2019, the board voted on and unanimously approved the addition of sexual orientation and gender identity to the district's non-discrimination ordinance. This change demonstrated the board's commitment to ensuring equitable and inclusive practices for all students, families, and staff members. And then in July of 2020, the board voted on and approved policy AC, which included an updated NDO, affirmed the district's compliance with non-discrimination and equal access laws, and clarified the district's discrimination, harassment, and retaliation reporting and investigation processes. Additionally, last spring, representatives from all attendance areas worked together on strategy 213, the discipline matrix and coding practices. Definitions, offenses, and action codes were discussed and considered through an equity lens in order to remove implicit bias and ensure equitable and inclusive practices. Moreover, restorative justice practices were built into the matrix, which encourage administrators to promote healthy, positive, relationship-based discipline and empower students to resolve conflicts on their own and in small groups. And then finally, in reference to action item 214, ensuring inclusive practices and procedures for transgender students. In October, the Department of Student and Family Services began meeting with a group of committed stakeholders, including teachers, administrators, parents, and students, to look at and discuss current practices and procedures and begin the development of consistent, inclusive, district-wide guidelines. And our department will have more information to share on this front in the months to come. The next area of our DEI work we will review the strategic plan through is our culture. This work lives primarily in strategies 233 and 222. A highlight of the work from strategy 233 is the development of a multicultural resource which can be found on the district website. In an effort to understand the current issues of our multicultural families, from supplemental classroom materials to religious holidays and their impact on school attendance, and build strong relationships with community stakeholders, we engage, we engage numerous stakeholders and created a multicultural resource list for our schools, for parent-teacher associations, and site councils to access and utilize. Additional opportunities for diversity, equity, and inclusion engagement continue to grow across our school learning community. Another area to highlight is the development of our superintendent advisory on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Given that we as a school system are not always aware of the needs of the greater school community, particularly our marginalized population, it's, it is important to create a space where those needs can be shared in an efficient and effective manner. This advisory group will provide insight to the superintendent on DEI-related matters with the goal of advising rather than the expectation to take action as a group. 
The superintendent will work closely with the cabinet and student and family services to identify the next logical steps to take from the learnings of this group. This group will meet three to four times a year and include representatives of affinity groups that will meet monthly. Finally, we have strategy 222 that culture shows up in as well. Our staff and those we recruit to join our staff help to define and reinforce our culture. The student and family services team began collaborating with human resources in the area of recruitment and retention. Recommendations were made to expand SMSD's recruiting team in order to grow into new recruiting spaces and to ensure we effectively and efficiently grow our certified and classified teams, particularly with regard to candidates that represent our marginalized populations. Our efforts are built around the belief that classroom teachers and building level professionals can efficiently and effectively build relationships with future employees and readily answer important questions. In our last area to look at the strategic plan through the lens of, is our DEI, of our DEI work is our practice. This shows up primarily in the following three strategies. Deve strategy 223, which is develop, grow, and expand the teacher education program. There's a task force is in the process of being established for this strategy. 224 is establishing uh, Grow Your Own grants and scholarships to hire back SMSD graduates. This work is scheduled to commence on um, in the fall of school year 21-22. And then finally, our practice shows up in 226, which is developing training, develop training onboarding plans for new staff to enhance the culture of diversity and equity. The Gantt chart shows that this action step has been identified as completed following the development of a DEI module in our Canvas mandatory training for all new staff. Our equity practitioners will take on this action step to create a suite of onboarding activities to include a welcome committee and more. So obviously none of this work does us any good if we can't see its impact in student outcomes specifically our marginalized groups of students. Growing in the DEI space is strategic and systemic, which means that student outcomes we needed yesterday will not show up tomorrow. Therefore, tonight we would not be able to produce student outcome data for it for presentation. However, we do have some progress monitoring data on the following slides. This data was derived from our Deep Equity Impact Survey given to all staff on June 15th of 2020. This survey contained 15 items. We had 701 respondents, 95.2%, which is 668 were certified, 4% were, which is 28 of that, were classified, 1.6, 11, identified as other. And this data served as a base, as baseline impact data for us, and we will look at just three of those survey items tonight. The first item we'll highlight was the item stating respondents' perception of the shift in the tone and depth of adult conversations about students socially and academically. 50.2% were in the affirmative, and, of the, of, and a few of the comments are listed here. Uh, one of them was, we asked more questions to get to the root of various student issues. 
Another one was in our PLCs, we try to dive deeper into some causes for absenteeism and work ethic. And then another comment was, we ask more questions to get to the root cause of issues behaviorally and academically. Of course, our, as a district, our goal is for every student, uh, family, staff member to feel safe, valued, respected. We want students to feel connected. And so this question is really important as it tells us that the deep equity training and the additional professional development that Dr. Bates is providing is really making a difference. With 50.6% of staff who took the survey saying that they believe there has been an improvement in the climate of inclusion for students. Additional sources of data will provide us with more information around culture and climate. The first panorama survey was just completed last week and results will give us insight into students' growth mindset, resilience, and student-teacher relationships. And in early 2021, students in grades 6, 8, 10, and 12 will take the Kansas Communities That Care survey. Taken together, this data will not only provide us with great insight into the well-being of our students and our staff, but also allows us to see that diversity inclusion work is not done in isolation. It interconnects with many other aspects and areas of the district's work. And so the final item that we'll take a look at tonight is the one asking about staff comfort level having discussions regarding racial, ethnic issues with their colleagues. In order to address DEI issues in our buildings and in our district, we need to speak directly to race. Diversity is a sanitized way of saying race. Surprisingly, this was one of the most favorable, um, this, this one had the most favorable of the responses uh, by staff. 67.8% of the respondents stated that they do feel comfortable. And it's clear that race and our relationship to it impacts how we see ourselves and others, and it is a barrier to building sustaining relationships with colleagues and students. Our DEI work is always going to have this element of the work at the forefront. This data demonstrates that our staff recognize and are not avoiding the impact that understanding race and racism has on teaching and learning. This data correlates to the board's decision to make this work a pillar of our organization by creating the space for it to live in policy and practice. I'll now pass it on to Dr. Grumman to give an ACT update which will take our DEI efforts to the doorstep of our student outcomes. Thank you. Uh, I want to re reiterate something that Dr. Bates had mentioned earlier, that diversity, equity, inclusion is threaded throughout our system. Um, and, and one of these pieces, sometimes you might wonder, well, why, what's ACT got to do with this? Well, it, taking the ACT for many students is not only, if you outside of the score, is somewhat of a rite of passage as part of your high school experience for many students. Um, in the 1819 school year, the Kansas legislator, legislature voted to fund an ACT assessment opportunity for all high school juniors during the school year, and that opened up some opportunities for our students as well, because that, you know, the the, the Saturday option was was not no longer just the only option. So that that first opportunity then was with that the class of 2020, um, and those are some of the results we're going to look at this this time around. 
that legislation included a three-year commitment, and, and, um, and it, like I said, it began with that class, and then you look class of 2021, so the current seniors had that opportunity. And in fact, this timing is good for this report because students are now signing up for um, the February opportunity coming up this, this, this next winter, so that, that sign-up is open for our current juniors. As you can see from the participation numbers on the slide, uh, this initiative has led to a substantial increase in the number of students participating in the ACT. Uh, the increase that you see in our district data compares, uh, corresponds to a statewide increase in ACT participation. Across the state of Kansas, the number of students participating in the ACT increased by approximately 3,500 students, and that was about a 13% increase over the previous year. When we look at ACT participation by race and ethnicity on the next slide, we do see a substantial increase in participation rates among black, Hispanic, and multiracial students within that class of 2020. So um, there's, there's still some room to grow, um, but we've certainly made an, a, a dramatic increase in the um, participation, open up that, that access to the assessment for students who might not have otherwise um, uh, signed up or had the, uh, knew, how, knew how to sign up or had Saturdays available to, to, to sign up and so on. So um, again, there's a, a Wednesday in February around the 23rd-ish uh, is when students had that, that opportunity. So counselors, principals, teachers could go out and, and recruit and advise students to, to participate. Still voluntary, um, but, but we were able to, to get more students to, to, to try it, to take the assessment to participate. So along with that, along with the ACT test, on the very next day, the Kansas legislature also funds an opportunity for students to participate in a, in a, a test that's maybe not as well known to us. It's called the ACT Work Keys Assessment. Um, but I'll mention it here. The Work Keys is another important tool available for support, supporting personalized learning plans and measuring student competencies related to their goals. The Work Keys is a skills assessment used to measure work readiness and students reaching a certain score level can earn what's called a National Career Readiness Certificate. Uh, many employers do recognize that, that certificate for employment and entry-level pay, uh, for example. And, and it, it's more highly recognized in, in the counties that you see lit up on the maps up above there. But in a lot of cases, employers might, um, your starting pay might be a, a quarter or 50 cents higher, um, things like that. So there's a bit of an advantage of having that credential. Um, and, and you do notice in the map there that, that the, the, the certification has a lot more traction in, in the Missouri side compared to Kansas, but there's those, those jobs are not far away. Uh, we had approximately 100 Shawnee Mission students in the class of 2020 participate in the ACT Work Keys assessment. Of course, accessing the assessment is just one step in ensuring that all students can construct their own foundation for success. Students also need to be, need to be able to perform to an extent that shows that they are prepared for that next level. And if we looking at that next slide, um, one way we can evaluate whether um, where students are is we can look at that average composite ACT score. And that's one way of evaluating student progress. It's not the only way that we would look at the data, but it is one way to get a, a simplified view of of, um, of where students are. And as you can see, with the increase in test participation, we also saw a, a decrease in our average composite score. So traditionally. Um, our average composite score has been in the in the 23s, the mid 23s, and the average composite score for the class of 2020 is the 22.4. We go to the next chart. We can see a five-year trend 
uh, for Shawnee Mission School District compared with the Kansas and the nation. And these lines are kind of mashed together in, in, in to, some, to some degree on, per, on purpose. You note the graph is scaled to match the actual score range more closely um, for the ACT. ACT scores range from 1 to 36. In this case, I set the scale from 12 to 36 because scores below that 12 level are quite rare. Um, but I set it this way to point out that while we prefer to see obviously more increases than decreases in the ACT performance, the averages over the years have been largely consistent. If we zoom in on this graph on the next slide, this is, might be what's, what's, what's most interesting or is as, as we start looking at the gaps and the differences between um, Shawnee Mission averages, the Kansas average overall, and then the national average, um, you can see that the gap between our, our, our Shawnee Mission graduates, students, that average composite score has been largely consistent um, for a number of years. Um, I also want to uh, note that the, while the, our, our district participation and the participation in the ACT across the state of Kansas has increased over um, the last several years, in particular, and mostly the last year, uh, national participation rates have actually been declining uh, for, a, for a variety of reasons, and it's not all pan pandemic related. It has, has um, been uh, uh, just some competition between testing organizations, but I also think um, uh, admissions criteria has been, has been changing over the years too. If we go on to the next slide, this uh, bar graph shows average ACT composite scores by race and ethnicity. So the blue, the blue bar is um, the result from the class of 2019. Red is the class of 2020. And then uh, for a, a comparison, you see the state of Kansas for the class of 2020 and, and those averages by each of those demographic groups. Um, so while we've noted, again, noted that substantial increase in participation of racial minorities on the ACT or work to improve other outcomes like uh, improving the score, um, you know, that, that work continues. Um, for some additional context, um, our black students make up approximately 9% of our student population. Hispanic students make up approximately 19% of our student population and multiracial is about 6% of our student population. Um, we have some have seen some of this, uh, I, I want to call it a dichotomy in some, some other places as well. We, we've um, got some increases, nice increases in, in the past in, in minority participation in other areas such as advanced coursework. Um, but again, we, we still need to also continue to stay focused on, on the outcomes um, beyond just the access piece, which is, which is really where that, those relationship pieces and that diversity and equity and inclusion work really, um, uh, I, I think, hits home on, on, on having those impacts. Finally, only, leaving, uh, only looking at the average scores leaves out an important component of this picture. Another way to examine our ACT data is to see how many students met or exceeded the college readiness benchmarks. Uh, students who meet college readiness benchmarks are considered to be on track for success in freshman level college coursework in courses like college algebra, uh, college level, freshman level biology, English composition. Um, so what you're seeing in the bars, the blue bars, is the, the raw number of students who are, have, have met all four um, uh, college readiness benchmarks uh, on the ACT. And, and what you can see, especially the, when I look at the last two years, is yes, there's a decrease in the average ACT composite score, but the number of students who are meeting that um, college readiness benchmark has been uh, fairly consistent, right? And in fact, if you actually do a quick calculation, because you can see the number of graduates at the bottom, the percentage of graduates 
actually increased with the class of 2020. So um, there's different different ways you can look at the data and what and, and, and where student success rates are in there. Um, so um, again, as as we're looking at this data, we're, we, there's some some work we need to continue to look at when we're, we're thinking about access to. Uh, resources curriculum ACT and we've made some great strides in, in being able to take advantage of the uh, uh, the state funded opportunity um, and um, but we have you know we, we have ongoing work to do with making sure that now that students have access to uh, things like the ACT and they can then plan to take the ACT and aspire to take an assessment and participate in these that they can begin earlier to thinking about how do I best prepare for an assessment like this all right, so as we continue to focus on the destination we build for every learner, uh, we recognize that diversity, equity, and inclusion work is by no means an isolated effort, and hopefully we have shared that work with you tonight. When done well, it's threaded throughout the organization, requires intentional collaboration among all our stakeholders, and while we're very proud of the work we have accomplished thus far, we recognize that there's a great deal of work left to do in order to ensure that every learner is prepared with the skills they need for college and career readiness and life success. So I want to, um, before, before we conclude, I want to, again, provide gratitude. We've talked about our 33 equity practitioners that we've brought on as the train the trainers this year. But also, when we started all this work a year ago, there are equity teams that are robust, that are energetic, that are committed to the work in every one of our schools. And they started the journey a year ago um, ahead. So I want to recognize the work of our, our teachers uh, and our, our staff, our administrators that have formed those equity teams and equity practitioners in every one of our schools, in addition to school leaders and our community supporters for the work that has been realized to date. Um, it would not happen without each of these individuals um, and their collective con contributions to the work. So we also thank you as our Board of Education as we shared tonight, the policy work that has been taken on by our board um, is um, very much appreciated and we have great thanks for that as well. Um, so thank you for the work that you have done to address policy that directly impacts diversity, equity, inclusion in our district. And Dr. Fulton, I will turn to you if there's anything that you would like to add. Okay, thank you very much. And it, just a couple of quick additions here uh, before we get to the last slide. I wanna talk about the slide that's up there. You know, we talk about our equity inclusion group uh, efforts. Everything we do comes back to those three objectives. And Dan was talking about the ACT. How do you get to higher ACT scores? You have high expectations for all students, and you help them develop the personal resilience they need to master the priority standards that lead to college and career readiness. Students who get a strong core curriculum do better on the ACT. That requires us to have high expectations of all students. Now, personalized learning plans are also important. You know, I had a, I had a, uh, a friend, actually a brother of a, of a close friend of mine in high school who had kind of two things to do on his personal learning plan in high school. One was to be an over-the-road trucker, to get a certification of being an over-the-road trucker. The other one was to be a doctor. Do you know, he got his certification to be an over-the-road trucker, and then he became a physician. It's okay to have 
as we all do in life, multiple goals. Some of which may be highly interconnected and some of which may be seemingly uh, completely disconnected. And what we need to do for our students is absolutely get them engaged in learning in ways that helps them to develop a personalized learning plan where they develop the skill sets they need for life success. So whether they take the ACT or the work keys or any other assessment that's tied to some of their life goals, they're ready. How do we know that we're being successful in our uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts? We're going to see our outcomes for all students improve. Disparity begins to go away. And that's not a dream. That's not even the ideal. That is possible with a deep commitment to holding ourselves accountable to those three outcomes and measuring all the way along adjusting our behavior as we go to make sure we're doing everything we can to help every child be successful. That's one of the reasons why I know that, we've, uh, that we also went over uh, something that pertains specifically to me, and that's that superintendent advisory group. You know, COVID-19 has put a delay on a number of things. We're, we're in our second year of uh, Corwin training, and we're, we're talking today. We don't know if we're at 1.25 or 1.5, but we know... We know we're not going to get to the 2.0 version this year. There's just, there's a lot of barriers in our way. And those barriers will eventually fade away. And we will get to the full training that we planned to do a year and a half ago. It will happen. Just maybe a little slower pace than what we wanted. The same thing has been true with the formation of this advisory uh, committee uh, to me. But here's, what's, here's what excites me about it. It's going to be an advisory committee, and I don't hand-select all the members. The members actually hand-select themselves by working with different affinity groups, by bringing in a plurality of voices. We can have an ongoing dialogue three to four times a year with this very diverse group, this representative of our district. And that group will change as time goes on, and that's good because they're not just bringing their own point of view. They're going to be bringing perspectives from the group that they represent. And so that's a different approach. But I'm very excited about that because it's not about what I'm going to do. It's about what we collectively are going to do based on the information that we see in front of us and the commitments that we're willing to make to make sure that every child achieves their personal success as defined in our strategic plan. So I want to commend the, the, uh, the group on the work that they're doing. You know, a lot of this sits in the background. I know a number of you have asked me, what are we doing? You, you're, you're very committed to this work, I know. But that's great, except you need to know what we're doing, right? So tonight is kind of your opportunity to not only uh, hear the story a little bit, but also ask questions. So I'll stop talking so you can do that. Um, so one of the portions of this evening's presentation was discussing the role of the board with regards to um, implementing policy. Um, identifying revising areas to ensure equitable and inclusive practices. So one of this evening's goals for us as a board is to send to the policy committee. Um, Ms. Goodburn and I have talked about it and she is ready to take on more work when we appreciate that. Thank you for all your work all the time. Um, and so the policy committee is going to be looking at um, policies that have been put in place in other districts where they have updated mascots um, and, and looking to see language that we can use to um, 
address that in our district. We have more than one building. We have three elementaries as well. Um, and so the, her team on the policy committee will do that and uh, present the board with language and a policy for our consideration at a later board meeting. Um, and so we are excited to contribute to continue our contributions as we move forward with these efforts. Um, and then I guess I will open it up to questions from other folks and reserve my questions for later, but I wanted to get that piece out so that everybody was up to speed on that. Um, as we saw this evening, um, there's several folks in our community that have raised this as an issue, and I think that they are looking forward to the, the work of the policy committee to bring that to us. So I'll, I'll start with Mary again, because she's right there. Thank you. Um, I'll work my way backwards um, with questions here in the presentation. Um, I believe, Dr. Grumman, you, the, one of the last slides you had here was um, looking at the um, ACT scores in relation to readiness for college. So, you, you know, telling us, you know, we can see how many kids across the, um, each year uh, are coming, hitting that point of readiness. So, could you remind me, just going back to the previous slides, is it 18 or 21 is the cutoff for, is considered kind of readiness in college admissions like at KU and right. MU and such? So each, each subject has a different um, college uh, threshold. So English, I think the number is 18. Math, I believe it's 22. I'm going off the top of my head. Um, Science, I believe, is 23, but they're all, you know, and I think reading was 22. So, so you, so to, to meet all four, you would have to be above a 22 in math, above a 22 in reading, above an 18 in English, and above a, and the science one is the one that escapes me the most, but I think that's a 20, 23, somewhere in there. Um, but you had to, you'd be, had to be above that threshold in all four of those areas. So on average, uh, our average score really is at college readiness, even with the um, big increase in participants in 2020. Correct. Uh, yeah, 22 for a composite score is a common qualifier for um, uh, also for your college admissions. So if that's if that's the question you're getting at. Okay. Thank um, you. Yeah. Mr. Stratton. Uh, my question is um, the Corwin process. Um, we've been barked on this for a year or two now. I was just curious what happens when new staff are brought on board. Are they plugged into the timeline where we're at or is there a, a, an orientation that gets them ramped up to where the rest of the staff already is? Yeah, so we um, start with bringing those new staff members into a session where we kind of bring them through a timeline of where we've been and what we've implemented and how they can engage um, at the point they are coming in. So we, we, we did that this, uh, this year and we did an abbreviated version of that where we uh, were able to give uh, a, a good timeline for our new staff members, uh, both certified and uh, classified staff members. Thank you. Um, thank you for this update. It's it's good to know some of the things that are happening. And um, it occurred to me, I think I've seen some stories about elementary schools now having some affinity groups, having black student unions, um, things like that starting. And so I'm just wondering if you can speak to, um, do you, you know off the top of your head, how many affinity groups we have in our schools? And is this something that is growing into the elementary schools so that they can impact the culture of their own school, even at the elementary level? 
Yeah, we have a number of affinity groups at the secondary level um, from uh, black student unions, to, uh, Hispanic student unions, uh, working on Jewish student unions, um, and um, um, uh, LGBTQ plus uh, unions. Um, the goal is to move into the elementary space, and we did have one. We do have one that's been up and running now for a couple of months over at Apache, and um, that is uh, that's been a uh, an exciting adventure, and and we hope to use that model uh, for other schools that that ask for it. So it's not about um, we're going to go to every school and say, hey, you have to have an affinity group. Affinity spaces are uh, spaces where people say, hey, I want a space. Can I have one? And absolutely, let's let's move forward with it. So it's it's upon request. Yes, I'd like a space. And so yeah, that's the goal. Are we just one question at a time? Is just go around? Is that? Yeah, I mean, if you have a series of questions on a related topic, that's okay. okay. We just try not to. We're just trying not to hammer them from one person. For oh yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, so thanks. Thank you for this update. I really appreciate it. Thanks for being here and joining us tonight. Um, so I had the privilege today of sitting in on a Black Student Union meeting at Shawnee Mission Northwest virtually, and so that was wonderful, and I just want to thank them for allowing me to listen and learn. Um, and I learned a lot just from the hour that we were together um, today. And, you know, um, one of the things I learned was just some some simple things, like, for example, um, cheerleaders having to pull their hair up and having it for people of color that can be difficult. Um, and so we were talking, and, and some some of these um, students said they they've even walked away from different activities because just simple things like that. Um, one of the things we talked about is the possibility of creating a student, a district-wide student advisory committee. So we can, so students of color can share those types of experiences to administrators in hopes of creating change. And I wasn't sure if this was something that um, has been brought before the district, if this is something that we've considered, if we're looking into doing, but um, I guess I'll start with that as my first question. Um, you know, that if you have a student advisory committee, that's something that very much would be rise from the student's desire to do something like that. And that can happen at the, uh, that can happen at the building level, it can happen at the district level. But that'd be something that we probably work with the principals on to see if that's something that uh, we could do that would be sustainable. I think that'd be true of just about for, for any group, any advisory group. Okay, that's great. Thanks. I'll I'll wait. I'll, my turn. Okay. Miss Emery. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna ask a question that's like a, a big can of worms, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. Which is, um, I think one of the things I heard a lot from families over the summer, and I think it's something we even heard tonight at public comment, was about how much our curriculum actually reflects the reality of the lived experience for Black people in America or Indigenous folks in America. So, I'm curious to know. Um, I know that happens a lot on our like curriculum side of things, but what role do you, Dr. Bates, or you, Dr. McKinney, get to play in helping to ensure that the curriculum we're putting in front of our students is um, equity-minded? One space is uh, Project Lit um, that is, uh, was born out of um, 
in our district, uh, Shining Mission Northwest, uh, but now is bleeding into other schools and other spaces that provides um, literature that is uh, culturally culturally responsive and sensitive um, and has representation of uh, diverse groups within our, our district. Um, so that's one space where the um, uh, the curriculum is sort of augmented um, in a uh, an indirect way. Um, so, and then the, the other other elements of being able to engage in the curriculum uh, is uh, we have been invited to um, engage with Dr. Dennis and his team around dialogue to help us to sort of um, uh, uh, desanitize our curriculum. Uh, and so that is a, that's a you know that's a long process, um, and it's really not about uh, sort of taking out and removing things is more about adding and asking questions about why is this missing or why was this not added and helping students sort of critically think through that process as opposed to just, because there isn't one curriculum or one textbook that has all the facts and all the figures and everything lined out. That just doesn't exist, at least yet. But for us, we can certainly, I think that's the, power of teaching, right? Uh, that's the power of this profession is that we can be practitioners uh, and see what our needs are and what we have and then our teachers fill that gap. We are starting to be invited to those meetings uh, around discipline, around curriculum, um, just to sort of provide that equity lens to all the decision making that's being, that's being done in those, um, in those situations. I think I would add one other piece that I, I personally think is a highlight for us is, you know, we talk a lot about, about the, the threading through the organization and the interconnections. And to see um, our library media specialists, who are an awesome team of people in our district, um, start to do some professional sharing around uh, tools that the publishing companies offer to allow them to go and do collection reviews for diversity within our titles. Um, that's something that came about earlier this fall, and um, it's a great opportunity to celebrate. It's not just the work that's here, it's when it starts to transcend throughout all areas of our district, and that's another example of where it's not just happening here, other teams are starting to take those steps to, to review. That's great. Kudos to you guys for starting to get invited to all the meetings. That's yeah. step and number one. Just a quick <laughs> shout out to Jackie Madrigal too. There's a teacher Absolutely. who saw a need and started something on her own and it's turned into, you know, it's going to receive English credit moving forward. I mean, she's just a, she, she really um, innovated that idea and I think something like that could spread across the district as well. Absolutely. My son took that course his senior year. He's really, really enjoyed it. Um, I had a question about Corwin. I know that um, we originally signed on a couple years ago. We pay like yearly on that since it's taken us a while and some of these things have gotten canceled. Is there any ch difference in the money? Are we uh, like uh, spreading it out or are we continuing yeah. to have to? Okay. Absolutely. We're, we're getting everything that we've paid for. Um, they've been extremely flexible uh, and accommodating um, and moving along with us uh, with this new normal that we're in with COVID, they have to rethink how they are presenting materials because their materials um, served for uh, the season that we were previously in. We're no longer in that season. And so they have to do some restructuring and they're doing it along the way. And it's good for our teams to see uh, that process underway as well. Whereas we, we had designed or we had thought we would go this route, but we want to be responsive 
to where we are as a world, as a society, and as a school district. And they've been very accommodating. I appreciate that. I appreciate their flexibility in, in helping us to, to navigate these times too. And um, just want to make sure our dollars are being spent, you know, spent wisely and that we're, we're able to get that done. Thank you. I Sure. You know, they mentioned uh, earlier in the presentation that some of the training we we're going to do, we cannot do, at least in that way, because of uh, lack of substitutes. And it's probably worth mentioning that not only has it impacted uh, the rate at which we're doing some of our corn, Corwin training or the depth of it with some groups, but that is certainly impacting everybody in the organization because the number of things that we do, whether it's curriculum work or other types of items, uh, we do use substitutes for, and basically all of that for this year is on hold for understandable reasons. So it, there's no question COVID-19 is having an impact on the work that we're able to accomplish this year, but it hasn't changed our focus for the long term. We just have to adjust the pace a little bit. And when we put together the contract for, uh, um, for the steep equity training, uh, it's incremental up to three years, but we look at it at the end of each year to kind of see where we are, to see if we want to proceed year to year. So we're in the second year. At the end of this year, we'll see where we are and we can proceed or not. Um, but the contract is built that way with the flexibility. But I do think Corwin has really worked with us through this, through this crisis that we're in right now. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Fulton, I would just like to, a little bit more information on the advisory group for, for you, the superintendent advisory group. I know we have a lot of patrons who um, are interested in participating or interested in its development, and I know you spoke to other entities that already exist helping to create that, um, but is there a pathway for individuals who, if they're not already, like, say, a member of the NAACP or a member of the whole person or, you know, yeah. If they're not already there, is there, or do we have local patrons who could participate? And then, um, I know everything has just been crazy lately. <laughs> just that, so yeah. not. Uh, I don't want to create additional pressure, but what does a timeline look like on that, just so that people have an idea of what what's coming and when? Um, sure, we've talked about. Uh, first of all, we're going to have membership composed of uh, students, parents staff and uh, some community members. We want to limit the total group to between 20 and 25 max because you want to have a place for safe dialogue. Mm -hmm. You know, it is, a, it is an advisory committee, so it's going to be a place where all people can come on equal footing and we'll just have a conversation. And that's, uh, that's we want to make sure that the representation is uh, from, it is spread out across the five high school attendance areas doesn't have to be high school folks. They can be from any level. So that's an important consideration. We also want to make sure that the affinity groups that we have are represented. Now, we don't have a large number of affinity groups right now, but as those grow, we can make sure that representation is there. So that's why I say that the representation on the advisory committee will probably adjust from one year to the next based on who the affinity groups want to have as their representative. And then we probably will have some other uh, uh, folks identified to come in and uh, they may be community members, you know, who are working on diversity issues. That's the part that we're in the process of defining right now. Our hope is really for this year to realistically probably do two meetings. 
one maybe toward the end of January, another uh, late spring. And we'll be working here over the next couple of weeks to identify who that initial group will be, understanding that the group we get started with this year will probably evolve as we identify the group for next year. And so I, I appreciate the work that um, that these great folks are doing to help put that, identify who the who the participants will be and get that group put together. Great. Does that help? So there'll okay. be there'll be more coming, and we'll be reaching out to folks to get it started. So they're helping to develop the foundation for what starts in January. Right, uh, right. We'll be working to get that done. And again, this is going to be a work in progress. This is the first advisory group ever. Mm-hmm. So it, what it looks like this year will probably be a little bit different than what it'll look like next year, and that's okay. I think the goal is to bring uh, bring good ideas to the table, and we discuss them in a free and open manner, and I think that would be helpful. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Um, Dr. Sinclair. Can I do a quick follow-up to yours? Um, of that first, that, and that's a, a superintendent's advisory group, right? That's an advisory it, is, group. it is an advisory group, and it's important to note that you know th- this is not a group that will be making recommendations to me. This is a place for dialogue, and as such, it, the, the, the conversations will be limited to just that group. It's not something you go out and telecast or something because, you know, these are difficult conversations. People need a safe place to come and share. Um, and so we want to create that space for them to do that. So that's, that's the purpose of an advisory group. Okay. Um, could, um, could someone speak a little bit more about the equity practitioners? There are 33 staff and perhaps who they are in, and what their, what their role is. Are they teachers, um, paraprofessionals, instructional coaches? You know, that, that, that's what I mean by who, and then um, an example of what they've been doing. Yeah, so the equity practitioners are comprised of certified staff currently, and it's uh, social workers, counselors, teachers, administrators. Uh, who are a part of that team. Uh, 25 of them are the, um, the, the trainers that will receive the certification from Corwin, and the balance are alternates for the Corwin training. So those 25 will be the only ones licensed to actually provide the Corwin training to our building level trainers. And then outside of that, uh, all 33 will receive additional trainings that uh, that group has identified the system would probably benefit from more of, such as LGBTQ plus matters. So we'll, for example, reach out to a a local expert, uh, local practitioner, let me not use the word expert, a local practitioner who is uh, working in this space to coach us and provide us with best practices so that we can use, utilize those and help uh, advise our, our systems, uh, advise our, our curriculum, advise our, our, our cabinet on best practices. Um, and then other matters, so it could be implicit bias. Um, um, and there's about 14 different areas that the team said, hey, we want to get smarter in these areas. Our system needs more of this information. And so my responsibility, our responsibility would be to go out and find practitioners who can help coach us and help us through those spaces. Uh, if, if training is the, the word, that, that'll be the case. But uh, ideally, we'd be in thought partnerships 
uh, so that we can improve uh, our knowledge base so we can serve our, our system. They uh, specifically will be, um, this, this group of uh, 33 will support building uh, and district leaders in planning and implementing our ongoing equity work, uh, sustain and deepen our equity work over time, support schools that need extra help in implementing the deep equity professional development, provide annual equity professional development for new hires, provide equity professional development for support staff and other groups. And so the, kind of the list goes on. They, they have a pretty hefty role. Uh, and this, this model uh, was presented to us by Corwin to help with sustaining uh, this work over time. And they were nominated by their buildings as well, which we thought was really kind of a unique way of identifying these people, you know, identifying these practitioners. They actually received nominations from their colleagues in their buildings. That's correct. So the, thank you, helpful information. So the 33 mostly come from buildings or a significant portion of them come from buildings? They all, all come from buildings. All come from buildings. So all they're still receiving their professional development before they can turn around and do the second part. So they're still receiving professional development and however this COVID timeline plays out, then they'll be able to turn around and provide that kind of support and technical assistance and additional development sure. to their peers. Absolutely. Okay. And um, last question there is, uh, so would there, would that be on top of their regular duties or do we add, do we allocate some dedicated FTE or does that become integrated in their role? I don't know how that part works. Yeah, so the, um, it is it is in addition to what they're currently doing, uh, and they and our practitioners uh, receive uh, extra duty pay for the meetings that we have. Um, currently, we meet once a month uh, for an hour and a half, um, and that space at that time they're able to anything outside of the duty day they will be compensated for. Uh, in year three. And, I, and that part, I feel like I'm exceeding my kind of role. I didn't mean to cut you off. I was just thinking in terms of time and availability more than I'm sure the compensation part would be worked out. I was just thinking in how much time they would have to allocate to that. That's kind of where I was. Right. That, that is um, ideally we hope that they would have to give up um, no more than 16 hours throughout the course of a school year. And that's the, that's the goal. Uh, 16 hours at max, uh, but it, we won't really know the need until we get through the training and we really assess where everyone is, especially after we get over this COVID hump, which we will get over it. Um, and then we'll be able to play it out. But it, the way they were explained uh, before accepting the responsibility was that uh, you would probably give up about maybe 16 hours, uh, which is, uh, which, which would kind of coincide with their work day. So oh, we, we hope to, to keep it inside of their work day as much as possible. Okay. Um, but we'll, we'll know more as we, as we study more and, and we uh, move through these uh, cycles that we're in now. Thank you, that's helpful. I'll just jump right in. Yeah, please do. <laughs> my, my, my question has to do with the, uh, the expanding role of our counselors in our high schools. Um, when I see the ACT participation go from 1,200 to 1,400, I'm thinking about two things. One is the front end, meaning how are the counselors changing their conversations to encourage more students to go down the path of an ACT prep and then test. And then secondly, at the other end, when the test results come in, it's an expanded pool of students that they're having a, a, a conversation with. So I'm not sure to turn through on that. But 
I would assume their plate's fuller, which is great. More full. Right, and, and I, I think, well, you have to expand that beyond just the counseling group because it's not just a counseling uh -huh. role. So right. you have to, you know, the... Um, we have to think of the ACT as, as, a, as an extended component of, of the classroom, right? You, you perform well on the test because of the alignment with the curriculum and the exposure to the curriculum and, 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 and the resources that are tied with it. So you really have to also make sure that we're, um, I guess, expanding the capacity of our classroom teachers as well. So, so in a lot of ways, some, some of these conversations are happening through... Um, so through like in individual plans of study, the use of Zello, um, and and also um, expanding those into like the, the seminar time, for example, at the high school is a good opportunity to do that. So you, you'll have to expand those things beyond um, maybe just the counseling area, so that um, you know your English teachers, your math teachers, your science teachers, you know all the, those they're they're all sort of talking about these assessments and college readiness type activities as an integrated part of your sort of your high school career. We, and you're absolutely right um, that the counselors are working extremely hard um, and um, always are. And this is going to be a big part of their responsibility. But Dr. Grumman's spot on in that it's everybody's responsibility. One of the things that we've been working on um, with our uh, practitioners and with our trainers um, and in all of our presentations is building those relationships with students, finding out where they want, what their goals are, finding out what they want to do, and then really working together collectively Collectively to encourage them to take the necessary classes, find out more about you know what the path looks like. U Science, something that Dr. Fleury is going to be sharing with the board uh, very soon, will give us another tool that identifies those areas where they want to focus, and then collectively we're going to work together to to help them get there. So yes, it's on a, a huge responsibility for the counselors. Um, much of that does fall to them, but what we're, we're hoping for and what we're really striving for is sort of that collective effort, building those relationships with students um, and finding out what makes, you know, what's relevant to them and then really working hard to get them to that goal. And if I could add to that related, and that is with the wonderful work of our Shawnee Mission Education Foundation, proactively getting all of right. these engagements with potential colleges to attend, I can only imagine that's a whole other layer that Absolutely. the counseling... You know, when we went out on those visits with uh, the Education Foundation to distribute those scholarships, you know, there were students, moms, dads who said, we never thought that we would be able to go to this school or we never, you know, we dreamed about it, but we didn't think it would be a reality, and now here's a scholarship. So absolutely, that's, um, that's a really important part of the whole process. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Reverend Guy. Ms. Borden? So um, with this pandemic, um, I, I am concerned that the achievement gap just continues to grow and widen. Um, and so I'm just wondering from a district level um, with the DE&I lens, you know, what are we doing to make sure that this achievement gap does not continue to grow? That's a great question. It's a bit one of the biggest challenges that we face is how do you avoid students who may be separated a little bit from the learning process anyway just because of their life situation become even more so during a, during a, a period of time when um, you know you may not even be in school you may be engaged in remote learning which has its own set of challenges depending on the 
well, the support network you have behind you. Um, I think one of the things that we're going to have to do is to look at how are our students doing in order to answer that question. And that's going to be part of the work that we, at some point we'll be bringing forward to you to say, here's, where, here's what we're seeing as our successes, but also here are challenges that we face today and in our time ahead. Because I think the biggest thing we're going to struggle with in American education is we know that because of COVID-19, there are going to be learning gaps that students are going to have. There are going to be, uh, there's going to be perhaps less learning in a number of cases that, have, that has occurred over a year to a year and a half period of time. And you, we can't allow students to go through their entire academic career continually behind in the learning. And we're trying to understand the scope of where we're at today so we can figure out what needs to happen next. The next isn't just next year, but it's in the next several years as we help them to get, help all of our learners get to where they need to be to be college and career ready. So I think that's a big question mark that we have, and I bet every public school in this yeah. country has, in terms of how, where are inequities and how do we address those needs as effectively as we can. And the best way to answer is through data, and that's, we'll begin to try to answer that question at our January workshop, but we won't have complete answers. Okay. We may have more questions than answers, but so, at least we'll, we'll, we'll start to, to work on that. Yeah, that was gonna be my follow-up at that January, and I appreciate you letting us know that we'll take a more focused look at learning, focused look at learning um, at our January workshop meeting, and I was, I'm hoping that we can look at that, some of the data through a DE&I lens. Um, absolutely. Just, okay, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. It. And it's not just their academics, but their social and emotional needs as well. Those are so crucial uh, right now also. So we've got some things that we're doing in that area also. Yeah, and I want to add to that that the, the DEI work is um, through our deep equity work and, and trainings that we're doing is where we're going to, I think, see a lot of, uh, get a lot of bang for our buck when it comes to uh, relationship building because the uh, the people who can tell you what their needs are the most are the people who are affected by circumstances. And if you don't have a relationship with people, they're less likely to tell you what they need. And so the deeper we can have and more sustainable, right, more sustainable, deep and sustainable relationships we can have with children, with our colleagues, I think we can obtain more information. They're more likely to share with you because they trust you, right? They believe that you're going to take care of them. So I'm going to tell you why I don't want to take the ACT as opposed to just not taking it, right? I'm going to tell you why I'm not coming to school as opposed to just not coming, right? And, and that's, that's grounded in the ability to really be able to create relationships across cultural and racial lines, which is what our deep equity work and our other work is designed to help us to get better at. And I think Project Lit is a perfect example of how to build those relationships um, across across racial lines even. Um, I know my daughter participates in it, and the first book that they read, I mean, it just started a great conversation at home, you know, which then started a great conversation with her grandparents, That's and great. it just had this ripple effect. So okay. I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, addition, Project Lit and programs like it expand across the district. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Absolutely. I'd, I'd just like to tease out what the role of the um, Superintendent Advisory Committee on DE&I is going to be, and I want to take like a really specific example because I'm trying to internalize and figure out how information from this 
it sounds like really great diverse group of folks is going to filter into the decision making of the board um, or if that's not going to be part of what happens um, I'm thinking right now actually just about we had obviously a lot of really difficult decisions to make over the last six months related to COVID and school reopening and time and time again I had a pit in my stomach that we weren't hearing from all portions of our community and I was afraid you know I think some voices were louder than others and just using that as an example if we're ever in a situation like that where we're having to make hard decisions will how, how would the voices of this advisory group come into our decision making as a board well when you put an advisory group like this together by their very nature by their very design it's not a group that's going to come and give me recommendations that I'm going to turn bring to you it really is a place to come and learn about key issues and the issues that we'll learn about will depend on part on what the group wants to discuss and uh, part of the part of it may be uh, feedback that I would need from the group so it's going to be helpful from the broad picture of diversity and inclusion but it, but it won't answer all of the questions that we're going to have about specific needs that we may have within our community and so what you wouldn't get for example is you wouldn't get me coming to you with saying to you my advisory group said we should do this here's a recommendation it would be more of us entering into this dialogue and saying you know these are really important issues we're talking about how does that impact what's happening in curriculum what happens with our social emotional work or other aspects of the work that we may have so that's that's going to be the one challenge is I don't know that that that's not going to be a group that's going to be fixing things solving problems per se but it's rather about building dialogue around the understanding of the issues that we have to face as a community is it a way that we can have more diverse perspectives brought into our conversation um, that's something I think we could probably talk about that might be a good board retreat discussion uh, because it may not be just, you know, there are multiple ways to get at that, and it just doesn't just have to be, mm -hmm. say, uh, an advisory group. Um, and I think part of it is actually having conversations like tonight where we are, we are looking at the data for what it is and also talking about what we're doing to get initiatives going. But beyond that, there might be other strategies that could be used. Yeah, I'm just, I'm flagging it in part because I know some of what I've heard is that to really have a commitment to DE&I, it needs to permeate everything you do. So I, I want us to be thoughtful about how we can make sure it's part of the conversations we have here in an ongoing way and not not just a, I, I'm glad having you guys here, but you know, mm -hmm. how, how we can make sure it's front and center for many conversations and not sort of our annual DE&I check-in, you know? Well, that's that's what some, I, I really want to underscore that uh, tonight. Um, DEI is not going to be a presentation at one board meeting a year. It permeates everything that we do. So when, when, for example, we are looking at various reports, including especially, well, anything, I mean, we do our strategic plan, so everything related to the strategic plan should have a diversity, uh, equity, inclusion lens to it. See, here's, here's part of the challenge that we face in schools. I think a lot of organizations face this. Is it's easy to talk about the issue. We all know that. It's hard to actually get results. So, for example... It's easy to talk about the need to improve ACT scores. It is hard to actually do it. That requires deep systemic, uh, a deep systemic change process over a period of time 
because we should be looking at kindergartners through a diversity, equity, inclusion lens and asking ourselves, what are we doing today in our practice to make sure that every single child is going to have a plan that helps them be college and career ready? We're thinking 13 years down the road. And what are the roadblocks that they're going to face? And, and that's hard because we've got to change our curriculum, you know, cur their curriculum expectations, our teaching expectations. And so that's why it's so important to integrate it into every aspect of our work that we do over a long period of time. And organizations that can do that, commit to it, and then hold themselves accountable to measurable results, <clears throat> academic, social, emotional, and so on. I think that's, those are the organizations that really grow and get better. Uh, too often, it ends up just being dialogue that doesn't actually lead to that kind of systemic improvement over time. So one of the things we want to try to do is let's, let's measure what we value. Let's make sure that we're getting better. If we, if we are, we want to know why. If we're not, we want to know why. And then what, and what conversations do we need to have to make sure that that happens? But it's a journey, that's for sure. I don't know if that answers your questions, but it's, I, our, our intention is we just integrate it into everything that we do so you see it in the presentations, not, it's not just one, one presentation a year. And I think that's one thing the board can do. If it, does that help? As I think it's just about making, yeah, making sure that we bring that to every conversation ourselves as well. So, yeah, it's, yeah, it's really being intentional about it. Um, yeah, it's important. Any final questions? Um, I just wanted to say um, I appreciate the legislature giving us the funds for the ACT for the juniors. It obviously made a difference. I'm glad to see that um, with 200, 200 plus, almost 200, you know, uh, students that may not have had access to it before. Um, and that was that, that's great. So I, you said it continues for three years. Is that correct? Right. This would be the third year, and I, I I'm not. I, of course, it depends on the legislative update. But this would be the third year opportunity. I'm not hearing any buzz about it going away. But that's okay. it, it's all depending on whether it yeah. continues to be funding. I have to do have to say that the timing, especially with this year, was spot on because we were able to test. Lots and lots of students in February, right before mm -hmm. um, things had to close down. So the class of 2021 at, at least had an opportunity to to get an ACT in, although they may have missed, you know, March or April opportunities going, you know, going forward. So, so that was uh, at least a, a bit of a plus for that group on the timing, as we were able mm -hmm. to get a, a, quite a few students in this in this cohort. Um, at least they had at least that one opportunity. I know, I know, and. Can I ask a follow-up question really quick? I know for um, the scholarship opportunity, I was thinking when, when Mr. Stratton mentioned that, I was like, okay, that, that is a good reason to take it your junior year. Do you, is that the best year to take your ACT, your junior year, um, in the middle of it? Or, I mean, I don't know. That, that, I mean, why the, junior year, I guess, is why, well, it's, not senior year. It's often, well, you usually want to give yourself enough time that if you wanted a second chance to take it, Mm -hmm. um, you you could, and so uh, spring of your junior years is, is often a recommended time because by that point, you've you've completed more than half of your high school curriculum. 
the math portion, for example, if you you know if you've completed or mostly through algebra two, then then you you've covered you know much of the content that's required on the on the ACT. So that's a good starting point to to have a score. Most students fill, uh, you know apply for college in the fall of their senior year. So if you have at least an opportunity in February, you get a score back. If you needed to take it a second of time, you have some time and some room to do that before you start filling out your applications in, in the fall. Um, you still have more opportunities because even when you submit those first app college applications, you can always you know, submit an updated ACT, ACT score after that point. But that is kind of the sweet spot to, um, for students to for students to take the test. Some will take it their sophomore year to begin with, but the, the spring of their junior year is a good place to start. And yeah. in terms of our data, we take the best score? Because I know students take it multiple times sometimes. Uh, right, the, the profile pe report picks up on the student's last score and not their best score. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily the best score, it's the last score. Uh, and we've seen students where the, you know, maybe if they took it twice, sometimes the first score is actually the better score uh, one of the things we see happen is many many colleges will super score. So they'll, they, instead of taking the composite, they'll take the best of the four subtests. So even though, let's say, the second time they might have a slightly lower composite, they may have had an increase in their math or English or one of the other test scores, and, that, and that's another reason for, for taking it. But, but as we, in the profile report that we receive, it only picks up on the student's last score. Yeah, but historically a lot of it does go back to core sequence. And it's usually that junior year when you're finally getting the core curriculum in place that uh, really prepares you for key aspects of the ACT, both reading, kind of science, logic, but also Algebra two and mathematics. So historically that's been a driving reason why a lot of times you take it toward the end of your junior year. Then you get more chances before your final score counts, right? You can take it again. Are there any further questions from the board? Does anyone have one more? Just, okay, Ms. Borkman. So I was um, reading in the, um, there was a deeper dive in board docs, the board report family services DEI program update. Mm -hmm. It talked about um, in January of 2021, the Kaufman equity cohort will conduct an equity audit with Shawnee Mission. And um, could you talk a little bit, I know it, it talked about some broad goals, but can you talk to us a little bit more about what this equity audit looks like and kind of perhaps a timeline if you know one? Yeah, we, uh, this is new for us. And so this is a journey uh, that we're gonna go through with uh, other metropolitan schools, which we thought would be great because we'll, we'll learn more from them in the conversation than we probably will through this process, I, I imagine. Um, Dr. Bates, just a quick aside. They actually reached out to us. They were they were they were aware of the work that we were doing in the Shawnee Mission School District, and so actually sought us out, which which I thought was pretty pretty great. So, sorry. And yep. we we might have more information to share after we start the process as a team because yeah. we haven't yet begun. So. Right, so that, that would essentially, that was my, my next point, was that we, we, we don't know enough to tell you exactly the details, but we know the overarching goals uh, for it. And we, we intend to shape it to meet what our needs are uh, and what information we need. And we definitely need to know if um, we need to look at the indicators that tell us that, yes, uh, we are improving in equity uh, in these areas, as opposed to the things that are glaring, um, you know, like 
access to technology. Like we can see those things, but there's other areas that we can't see that we need to make sure we're aware of so that we don't um, move from one issue and say, oh, we didn't see that one. Now I got to go over here and deal with that one. We want to make sure we can comb our system and really understand all the factors of, of inequities that may be at play. It's a great opportunity. Yeah, timeline, we have a meeting in December. I think December 3rd is the next yep. um, kind of planning meeting, mm -hmm. and then we'll get started in 2021. Great. I have just one. It's more, it's more of a, I guess it's a question for the board, of, around the mascots issue coming to the policy committee, which I'm happy to take on and sit on the policy committee for. I have reflected a lot back on our own non-discrimination language, and a, and a part of me feels like, the map, some of the mascots that we have is already in violation of our own policy. So happy to go there, but also putting out there that I think, um, that would maybe be a Rachel question, but I, I, I would think there is a case to be made that we're already in violation of our own policies um, with some of the mascots we're using in Shawnee Mission. But we can work through that at the policy committee, I guess. <laughs> um, I, I won't take, I won't, give a legal opinion on that, but it is, it will be nice to have something that speaks specifically to this issue to come for board action um, so that there's no um, lack of clarity on the issue in policy. Um, so I think that is beneficial. Um, and should the board, when it comes to the board, pass it, then the administration would put in to rolling into practices to inform the buildings where there would be an issue to update on, on how to go about doing that. So then that would be when the administration would step in and, and take that action. Um, but so that, that's all I have to add on that one. But, Thank you. but, I, appreciate, but I appreciate your guys' work and willingness to take it on. Um, I think it is important to the community right now, for sure. Actually, I think it's been important to the community for a while now. And um, they've shown grace with regards to everything else that's happened in the last eight months, nine, is it nine months now? Right. <laughs> it's never ending Groundhog Day. Um, does anybody have any final comments or questions? Um, I do want to thank everyone who came to present tonight and thank Dr. Fulton. Um, it strikes me that whenever we talk about increased access or diversity and inclusion, um, we end up benefiting all of our kids. I remember when we were updating the LGBTQ policy, um, you know, people who advised on that said, you know, buildings that are districts that implement this, they have a reduction in suicide across the board because you're making an inclusive and welcoming community. And I appreciate all of your efforts um, to help find those opportunities that we have uh, to improve and to provide a welcoming community for all our students. So thank you for being here tonight. And thank you for your work, Dr. Fulton. Thank you. And, and thank you to the group right, for your wonderful presentation tonight. Thank you for your work. Um, with that, we get to move on to our consent agenda. So um, we'll let those folks escape. And I will seek a motion for approval of the consent agenda. Move to approve, Borkman. Thank you, Ms. Borkman. Is there a second? Hembry, second. Thank you, Ms. Hembry. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Are there any opposed? Hearing none, that passes unanimously. Moving on to item 5.1, it's a proclamation for NEA's American Education Week. Um, and Dr. Sinclair is going to um, read our proclamation, but first I will get a motion and a second, and then she can read it. Is there a motion, please? I'll make a motion. Thank you, Dr. Sinclair. Is there a second? 
I'll second. Thank you, Mr. Stratton. And I will defer to you to read the whereas statement. Thank you. Uh, proclamation for the National Education Association's American Education Week. Whereas public schools are the backbone of our democracy, providing young people with the tools they need to maintain our nation's precious values of freedom, civility, and equality. And whereas by equipping young Americans with both practical skills and broader intellectual abilities, schools give them hope for and access to a productive future. And whereas education employees, be they teachers or custodians, food service staff or librarians, work tirelessly to serve our children and communities with care and professionalism. And whereas schools are community linchpins, bringing together adults and children, educators and volunteers, business leaders, and elected officials in a common enterprise. And whereas the Shawnee Mission School District is committed to providing every child with a personalized learning plan that will prepare them for college or careers with the interpersonal skills they need for life success. And now, therefore, the Board of Education of Shawnee Mission School District does hereby proclaim November 16 to 20, 2020, as the 99th annual observance of NEA's American Education Week, and urge all parents, teachers, administrators, and students to join us in honoring the institution of education in Shawnee Mission and in America. Thank you. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 And passes unanimously. Uh, moving on to item 5.2, the approval of the proposed agency contract for supplemental operations staffing. This was something that was raised um, on Tuesday night that we are having significant staffing issues. And so Dr. Fulton um, will have you explain some of this. I'll go ahead and seek the motion in the second and then we'll have you speak to it. Is there a motion? I move approval. Thank you, Dr. Sinclair. Is there a second? Second, Guy. Thank you, Reverend Guy. Uh, go ahead, Dr. Fulton. Sure, I'm gonna have Dr. Atha go ahead and explain uh, the contract. Yeah, uh, we are recommending approval of the contract this evening with uh, Pinnacle Staffing Group um, to contract um, uh, custodians and possibly some maintenance folks. Um, basically, uh, we're probably no different than any other school district around us right now. We're having trouble. Uh, recruiting and retaining custodians and some maintenance staff. Um, we uh, and as you know, we're we're requiring uh, we're we're requiring more of our custodial staff now with COVID-19, where we're disinfecting our buildings and deeper cleaning our trying to deeper clean our buildings, and um, that's that's posing us a challenge. And I think right now we're about 14, 15 custodians short, and then we've got about 14 on on leave. So. Uh, that's creating some gaps um, in in our cleaning and sanitation, uh, and this is just thinking a little outside the box of um, using a contracted service for a period of time that uh, will work within the parameters of five hundred ten thousand dollars over the court remainder of this year, and it can be paid out of out of the CARES fund. Uh, another example of how we've thought outside the box, and I, I, when I say we, I'm talking more Bob and his team in, in facilities, is that uh, we worked with Nancy Kokenauer and her team, uh, her team uh, in food service gets about four, four and a half hours a day. And we've, we've kind of brought them in to where some of them that 
that want extra hours, they can help uh, do some cleaning and disinfecting and, and in the buildings that they're current, well, currently working in, but it's certainly optional to them. But we've got some pretty good response there and real good work because those, those folks are used to cleaning and sanitizing, so they, they do a really good job. So uh, this is just to give us another, another uh, tool in our bag of tricks here, if you will, to, to try to um, address this, this shortage uh, that we have right now. And um, we have a, a, you know, we've, um, we've uh, gained some references on this group and, we've, and some other t uh, schools around us are using them as well. So that's why we're recommending them to you this evening for your consideration. And I've got Bob Robinson here. If we can answer any questions that you may have. I have a quick question. Um, when you speak to gaps, um, have we had problems m meeting our sanitation needs, like sanitizing the buildings as a result of those gaps? Or are we covering those gaps even without this contract right now? Or um, I'm, I guess I'm just, it just piqued my concerns with regards to that we don't want to have any, any gaps. <laughs> right now in um, you know, sanitizing at the end of the day. And so it's making sure, I mean, yes, that's why this is on the agenda. I just, we're operating safely. I think we're doing a good job of disinfecting our buildings every day. Um, and I think we're doing a good job of cleaning our buildings every day. But I do think we have some gaps here and there due to, um, you know, a shortage of, of custodians right now. Those, there's a reason why we had those 28 to 30 custodians. And when they're absent, or if, if we don't have them, uh, that will create some gaps in our cleaning and our disinfecting. So we want to assure that up. So, yeah, and that is really important. That's part of the whole, the whole uh, longer term strategy that we're looking at. I mean, it's, we talked earlier about staffing for teachers. Staffing also applies to custodians, to uh, bus drivers, to all kinds of classified groups. And if you don't have enough people, then you can't get the work done. And that's not okay when you're in a COVID-19 world. So that's, I think this is going to help us to make sure that we're staying on top of it. And part of it now, we're, we're able to use, we're using overtime with some of our other staff too. And we're, we're afraid of burnout with that staff as we, we continue to, to build into this. Uh, so this is just another avenue for us to be able to pick up some additional manpower to uh, help us cover those buildings. Thank you, that's appreciated. Um, and tell them thank you for their overtime work to know that it was being covered by folks who are putting in more time and that we'll be able to ease that. That makes me feel a little bit better. Um, I appreciate them. You're welcome. Um, are there any other questions? Seeing none, all those in favor, please say aye. 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 Are there any opposed? Hearing none, it passes unanimously. And we move on to item um, 5.3. This is the approval of the new board policy, DBB. I'll get the motion, the second, and then Ms. Goodburn can give us uh, 
the information on it. Oh wait, this isn't. This is the first reading. This one's the first reading, so we don't need to do. We don't need much to of do anything that. there. No. Thank you, Miss Goodburn. I was just about to motion too. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> right. no, it's not that one. Those are I'm next glad you one. caught me. Second readings are next. Okay. So I'm going to turn this one over to Dr. Fulton. As you all remember, in the last couple months, we've had presentations uh, concern uh, around the bond issue the bond uh, that we're doing. And so um, these guardrails that we had talked about, uh, we, um, the policy committee took a look at it. And I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Fulton and Mr. Knapp to discuss this. Right. And Mr. Knapp, I might have you come up to the table. You know, everything that's in this policy is exactly what we've been talking about for a number of months, going all the way back almost to the, to the springtime. You know, this notion of in order to have effective balances, you need to have 10 to 15 percent in order to have adequate cash flow. You see that in the introduction or the first sentence here of the of the policy, and that we have to have at least 8.3 percent or one month's expenses, whichever is greater, as a reserve to make sure that you can meet payroll and meet uh, meet expenses, pay your bills. Um, we, we took those two important ideas and simply uh, put this into policy language. The Policy Review Committee did that. Um, and so and we give some of the rationale as to why that's important to do. And that was, in the, that was in the first part of it. You might notice, too, at the very end of that first paragraph, it, talk, it talks about the importance of uh, fund balances when it comes to bond ratings. So the cost of borrowing money goes up if you don't have good a good, sound, uh, long-term financial uh, stability underneath you. So that's, that's important. And then the second paragraph, it speaks to this important idea that we're going to cap our capital expenditures for custodial maintenance salaries at 25%, ensuring that we'll be able to continue to maintain buildings by technology and provide the supports that we need to keep our facilities going with those kinds of items that are routine maintenance and would fall outside what would you you'd normally do in a bond issue. And so with that, I don't know, Mr. Knapp, if you want to add anything to that or not, but that's that's the crux of this policy. It simply, it simply uh, puts into policy what we've been saying is important to do to put ourselves in good financial situation for the long term as we continue to try to meet the needs of the district. Russ, do you want to add anything to that? No, don't. No, I really don't. It, just to reiterate, it's been things that we've been talking to you about over the past year or two, and this just encapsulates it into a policy. And probably a pandemic is a good time to be doing this. I was just going to say, didn't we get news that we're uh, negative uh, three and a half million dollars less in revenue this year? Mm -hmm. And this is exactly reading to what I'm just reading one of these under B about you know unexpected reductions in state payments. Not caused yeah. by caused by COVID. This is a perfect Unless example when yes. this would come into play. Yes, and why we need that so timely. Okay. Well, um, thank you. So, and since it's a brand new policy, if you all remember, since it's brand new to us, uh, we do a first read, and then so next month we'll do a second read on this. So, if you have any other questions about specific language, words, whatever, you know, again, direct those to Dr. Fulton, and, and then he'll get those to us because we will meet. In December 3rd, the policy committee, if we need to make any little slight re uh, you know, revisions or anything to that, we can meet and do that December 3rd. So, sounds good. Just, yeah. 
Go ahead. Could I add a comment? The, I did go back, at least in the last policy, uh, excuse me, the last finance and facilities committee meeting, um, because we, uh, this was on the agenda just to discuss this as well a little bit. So if, uh, if you go to that last meeting, like at about the minute or hour and a half, hour 40 minute mark, there's some discussion around um, uh, this policy. And I know there's other places in there. I'd be happy to try to pull those out if that's helpful. I think one of the things they emphasized is that 10 to 15%. They were concerned about the 8.3. We, we explained that to them, but they were... They did talk about the need for that 10 to 15% as a as a goal, as a starting point. I don't know, Mr. Knapp, again, if you want to add to that or not. Uh, no, they, they just made those comments that 10 to 15% seemed like a reasonable target. Right. And, you know, uh, people are always worried that you're stockpiling money. That's not the goal of this policy. This policy is to provide good fiduciary oversight with, with, to have this board and future boards really think carefully about what their responsibility is, and, and administrators too, to ensure that the district's on a good footing when it comes to finances, both in the operating fund and in our capital expenditures. Okay. I'm going to move on to item 5.4. Um, approval of the revised board policy DFE. This one is a second reading. So get the motion in the second, and then we'll have Ms. Goodburn just give a... So I will move approval, Goodburn. Thank you, Ms. Goodburn. Second. Thank you, Mr. Stratton. Um, and can you just give us a brief yeah. recap on this one? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, so this is KS KASB updated model policy. We've reworded, reordered it a bit. Uh, it's been reviewed by staff and legal um, reviews and is our current, and basically um, is our current practice. Thank you. Were there any last questions before we call the vote? Mm -hmm. All right. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Are there any opposed? Hearing none, that passes unanimously. Move on to 5.5, .5, approval of revised board policy, JQKA. Um, same situation. Seek the motion in the second. I will move approval. Thank you, Ms. Goodburn. Second, Hembry. Thank you, Ms. Hembry. Um, do you want to give us a brief on that? Sure. Again, uh, recommended action tonight. Obviously, KSB model policy update reviewed by staff and legal and matches our current practice. Any questions? Hmm. Hearing none, all those in favor, please say aye. 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 Are there any opposed? Okay, and that one passes unanimously, and we've made it to board comments. Um, I will uh, start on this. Ms. Goodburn, would you start board comments for us this evening? We'll work our way around. I feel like I always starting on the end, so it's like I need to mix it up a little bit. <laughs> I really don't have any other than I'm happy for the policy committee to be looking at the um, the policy on mascots. I think it's time um, that we address that. Um, and I um, uh, wanted to let everyone know too. We have meetings, so December third. We only meet one time a, a month, uh, December third, and we only have one board meeting. I I would anticipate that we're going to have to do a little study on this and look at different policies and then um, propose some language maybe in January. So I just wanted to give everyone a timeline on that. I don't know, maybe we'll get it done in December. We're a pretty awesome group. But, um, <laughs> but I, I just want to be realistic. Right, I think that it's, was good. <laughs> that was really good. <laughs> I think it would be probably January because we'll have a meeting. I think, I think it's probably after we start back, to start back in um, around January 7th, something like that. And we do have, I think, two meetings in January, I believe, if I looked at the calendar right. 
So anyway, I would anticipate something in January from us. But again, those meetings are open to the public too if anyone wants to come. And you just, just ask uh, our board clerk, Terry Wintering, when they're happening and, and so people are able to come if you want to. That's all Thank I would you. have. Thank you. Ms. Hembree. I just want to give an extra thank you for parent-teacher conferences, which have happened over the last couple of weeks. And I think we talked here about personalized learning, and it's sort of a big, grand idea. But to sit across from my own kid's teacher and have her say, like, did you know how much he likes mysteries? And me be like, no, I had no idea how much he liked mysteries. Like, it's just they're always such a good reminder for me of how much our teachers are really paying attention to each individual student. And... I know they were extra time for our teachers and uh, extra stressful, so just thanks for parent-teacher conferences. They were wonderful. Just to thank you again to the Black Student Union at Shawnee Mission Northwest for allowing me to sit in and listen to their amazing meeting uh, today. And um, the, this group of students are game changers, and um, they have a very bright future. Also, today's my husband's birthday, so happy birthday to him. <laughs> Reverend Guy. I want to thank the speakers who came tonight uh, for public comment and just to reiterate what Mrs. Owsley said that um, those who asked us to consider changing the mascot have waited a long time and have been very gracious in letting us deal with the emergency situation that's been in front of us for so long. And I too am very glad that the policy committee is going to be looking at this and I'm sorry that it took us as a district this long, but I'm glad that we're finally addressing it. My only comment is thank you again to the entire staff team. The presentations today were very thorough, in-depth, and uh, had some real meat, some good discussions. And then thank you to our board. Um, I continue to be impressed by the conversation that happened around, around this table. Uh, having been here for five years now, this is an impressive group, and thank you for your very candid conversation. It, it's helpful to the entire district that we have these kind of conversations. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you to Team Awesome for taking on the uh, <laughs> policy conversation. Now this can be it's great, uh, and uh, I appreciate uh, uh, Mr. Stratton the work you did in helping getting some of these committees off the ground and launched. Um, round of thank yous. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Fulton, Dr. Atha, um, Dr. Hubbard, for being proactive about gathering information and getting um, our community stakeholders to the table with the architects in the beginning of this process and continuing, and even adopting tools like Thought Exchange to allow us to get more broad-based input from our um, last seven rebuilds. You know, just those kind of opportunities to continue to hear from our patrons is great. Uh, congrats to the SME speech um, and debate team. I'll stop there. Um, so my comments tonight are just I feel like we're living in two um, dual realities. On the, in, in the one, we're dealing with what feels like about to be um, additional crisis. And, you know, as Dr. Fulton mentioned, while well, we're going to put all our resources into keeping primary going as long as we can. It is probable that there will come a time when that is not going to be sustainable and we don't know when that is, but it does feel like it is imminent. So it, and, and what's happening in our broader community with regards to the crisis of COVID and, and what we will likely be seeing over the next few weeks is just such a beyond reckoning um, timeline 
when I think about that, you know, they're projecting that we're two weeks behind El Paso and what El Paso has been dealing with and knowing that that's what's coming for our community. I have, I have grief for us as we face that. And then in the other reality, the reality that involves hopefully breaking ground on two new buildings next summer and helping to lay the foundation for the future success of the district and deal with the other, um, the other issues that we have as a community with regards to creating an equitable and um, welcoming community. Um, so that brings me a lot of hope. And so I, I feel like I'm living in two dual realities where we're, we receive communications from educators who are so concerned both about their students getting what they need and then their own health and safety. And then also needing to do the future planning. And so I, I do wanna thank um, all the members of this district that have made it possible for our kiddos to get the opportunity to be in person because um, they are making sacrifices and they, they know they're making sacrifices. And for some of our families, whatever time we can give them additional in primary, then that's another week of pay for them for whatever is coming up with the looming crisis. And so it, there's so many needs that need to be met and um, I'm very much looking forward to next summer when our um, items are our agenda are the groundbreaking ceremonies for the new buildings because I feel like that'll be starting the next chapter after this one closes. But um, thank you all of my board members for being here tonight. Another, another four hour meeting is in the books <laughs> and we have no executive session after this. So this is the close of business. And our next regularly scheduled board meeting is for December 21st. So we'll see you all there. Thank you.